Welcome to episode 1499 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello, Ben. Doing a season preview podcast today, so in a little while, we will be bringing on Fabian Ardaya to talk about the Angels. And then after that, we'll leech to talk about the Cardinals. And then finally, I will be bringing on Craig Edwards from Fangrass to talk about how much money the Red Sox actually saved from getting under the competitive balance tax threshold via the Mookie Betts trade. Spoiler, it's probably less than you think. And we'll also discuss the rumored new playoff format that MLB floated this week, as well as the three batter minimum rule that's going into effect this season. But before we do... It's been kind of a busy, newsy week in baseball, and it's been yet another Astros-centric week. It just keeps striking me, I think, how perfectly constructed the sign-stealing scandal is to sustain this story indefinitely. (laughs) This story is not going away, nor should it go away. It's a big story. But the way that little dribs and drabs of information keep coming out bit by bit It seems almost like it's calculated in a way to keep it front and center. And beyond that, now that players are reported to spring training, there's an endless number of people that you can go to for quotes about this. And of course, there was the whole Astros apology fiasco, semi-fiasco on Thursday morning. It really goes back to the beginning of this because, as we said at the time, obviously a, a huge story regardless. But the fact that there was this audio component of it and video component of it and the fact that we could all go back and hear the bangs and it was just undeniable that really just made it the perfect storm because that confirmed it. It showed what the extent of it was. It made it possible for people in public to do their own digging and see it for themselves in a way that usually you can't, even when we find out about a scandal or a sign-stealing scandal. So much of this has just been sort of, I guess, MLB's worst nightmare in that they don't want this to continue to be the biggest story, but it just will be because, you know, now you can ask everyone who ever played the Astros in 2017 or 2018 what they think of it. And obviously players have strong opinions about this. And then players who are no longer on the Astros, people can go to them and ask them, do they feel bad about it? Do they apologize? And then the Astros themselves, of course, it will follow them throughout the season, whether they do well or do poorly if they do well then people will say see sign stealing didn't matter if they do poorly if anyone slumps it'll be constant up see not so good without the sign stealing now are you and we just found out that there's going to be a new podcast and tv series coming out in the summer from the people who made slow burn and ben writer who wrote astro ball so whatever that turns up that will bring this back into the news it's really kind of incredible just this is the perpetual motion machine of stories and as astros beat writer chandler rome tweeted on thursday many many pieces of content forthcoming he meant his own content but i think that applies to all kinds of content yeah i hadn't really thought of it that way but you're right i mean normally if in in like in real life in like the larger world when a a scandal is dropping there's often talk about like a friday news dump where you you drop it when uh, everybody's about to leave work and uh when not as many people are paying attention maybe to the newspapers the next day and so on and you would think the equivalent to that would be for baseball would be the off season because not as many people are paying attention and nobody's at work Mm -hmm. and yet you're right the fact that this happened uh in the off season probably it 
allowed there to be many news cycles about it, multiple waves of news cycles. I mean, you can sort of tell that the Astros are desperate to get to that point where, I mean, as anybody in a scandal is desperate to get to that point where you can act like we've passed the news cycle and now Mm -hmm. everybody should, should just move on. And, and, and so then when someone comes up and asks you about it, you can say, well, we already addressed that or, well, the commissioner already, you know, issued his report or, well, we've already, you know, whatever the case may be, you like, you say that's been done and now we're on a new news cycle. And if this had all broken on, you know, April 25th in the middle of a season, when everybody was around and everybody was at work, I, I wonder whether it would have like been a, like, I don't know, a four-day story or something where, like, everybody got their quotes in all at once, everybody was accessible, and then the mm-hmm. Astros after that would just look at you like you were the jerk for talking about it and be on <laughs> yeah. that. They haven't been able to do that because, it, like you say, drips and drabs and different mm-hmm. waves and information. It's not also just that, like, more stuff comes out, but each thing really does seem to escalate it and so you get the sense that the full story has never been out and that there's a clear trajectory (laughs) on this stuff that makes you wonder well what's you know what's coming next yeah exactly and to some extent it's the astro's own fault i mean obviously the whole thing is the astro's fault but the fact that the story keeps going and going is partly the astro's fault for how they handled it initially and you know at their fan fest when they sort of didn't say anything and said we'll talk about it later And then because of how it came out with fires and the athletic story, and then there was the MLB investigation, which took months. And so that whole time it was kind of cooking and you were hearing little things here and there. And here's what the commissioner is going to do. And the penalties are going to be harsh. And then the report came out and I think MLB hoped, okay, that's it. We put these punishments out there. We said what happened and that's that. And that has not happened at all. And so MLB, I think, shot itself in the foot by seemingly not disclosing everything it knew so that when Jared Diamond came out with his Wall Street Journal report about Codebreaker and the dark arts and all of that, A, that was just new grist for the mill, another new cycle, and B, it made the MLB report look bad and it made Manfred look bad for seemingly trying to sweep that under the rug or minimize what was happening there. And then because that wasn't included in the MLB report, then it was only natural to wonder what else wasn't in the MLB report. And so it keeps uh, building and building and snowballing and snowballing. And then on the analytical side, our recent guest, Tony Adams, did his whole listening project and put up his banging scheme data. And that kicked off a new round of analytical articles and studies and research about how much it helped or didn't help. And I sort of thought that maybe it would go quiet after a while. And then 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, all these people would write memoirs and we would know exactly what happened once it was far enough behind them that they felt like they could come clean. And instead, it's all coming out, you know, and I don't know who is leaking these emails that Jared has been reporting in the Wall Street Journal in that first story and a subsequent story. I don't know if it's someone who was with the Astros who feels like they didn't get their comeuppance and wants all this out there or someone at MLB who thinks that it should have been included in the report. I don't know what their motivations are, but clearly someone is leaking these emails, this correspondence, and every little detail is juicy especially because the people who were sending those emails 
are still employed by the team, which is just another thing that keeps this in the news because James Click was asked about that and he was kind of noncommittal. He said that those people remain employed by the organization. He didn't say that they will continue to, although he said that Pete Patilla, the assistant GM, will remain assistant GM. But when you have like this, you know, former intern who came up with this and is now employed in a different capacity and the director of advanced information and the manager of scouting analysis and the hitting coach, Alex Centrone, and all these people who were seemingly intimately involved with this and are still with the team and showing up at spring training, it just sort of feels like there isn't as much accountability as there should have been or that there's more forthcoming. And I think Jim Crane said that they would be making some more changes in the baseball operations department. And I don't know if they're doing that because now this is public and it's come out or whether they would have anyway, but that seems to be a theme of just not doing anything until your hand is forced by the public knowing about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the story has also had legs because Cora and, and Beltron had moved on to other managerial jobs. And so mm-hmm. there was a, a there's a way that this scandal became kind of nationwide instead of centered in just one team. I think that the fact that the Astros won the World Series that year probably did a lot to strengthen it. I think the fact <laughs> that it was the Astros and not mm-hmm. any other team, which maybe that's Maybe it, maybe it would only have been the Astros. Maybe that's the whole point, but uh, that it was the Astros particularly and that it had come, you know, after years of this sort of simmering and then finally exploding concern about the Astros culture. Uh, I think the fact that the Red Sox then won the next World Series mm-hmm. <laughs> with Cora uh, extends it. I think the fact that the Astros didn't get worse. It, I mean, not specifically that the Astros are still such a threat. If they were just another team right now, I don't know that it would be such a big deal, but the fact that, or rather that the news cycle would have lasted so long, but the fact that yeah. the Astros are still going into this season as as maybe the favorite uh, it lengthens it. And Yeah, although uh, maybe if they had headed downhill shortly after that, then people would have seen that as further confirmation that yeah, they were maybe a they mirage would. and it was based on sign stealing. Not that yeah. anyone seems to doubt that sign stealing was uh, very involved and, and responsible for their right. success, but... Yeah, yeah. That's why I changed. That's why I changed the wording from big deal to mm-hmm. lengthy news cycle because I I think that if they had gotten much worse after they quit, then yeah, we would. Uh, it's it's possible that this would be a, a bigger deal. But I think that the news cycle might have been contained a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, you've got all these players. You've got thousands of players who just showed up to spring training this week for whom the Astros are the main threat or one of the main threats between them and their goal of winning the World Series this year. And so they have uh, probably extra bitterness at them. So, uh, yeah, all those things and more have made yeah. it uh, the the perfect case for this to, to uh, you know, to, I, I mean, I think this is a pretty significant thing for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons it's significant is because they, I, I think that the notion that cheating in baseball is part of the game is that that you know if you're not cheating you're not trying and this long history of shenanigans that that after a couple of decades are are sort of looked back at cutely and various legends of various you know men in white or or with you know spy glasses and scoreboard you know shenanigans mm-hmm. uh, all of that was kind of hanging unresolved and this really clarified that that whatever baseball used to be in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, 
and may have been in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it's hard to know, it is not what people want baseball to be going forward. That mm-hmm. that That is not, that we are drawing a line in the sand that says, no longer is this a cheating sport. No longer is cheating part of trying. No longer is it just part of the gameplay, uh, the meta competition between teams to win by winning, you know, by, by getting advantageous uh, circumstances for themselves, all of that. And in order to draw that really crisp line that says no, no more, you need a really clean, clear case where there's a lot of emotion and where it doesn't fade quickly and where you don't get the sense that people got away with things and that, you know, you don't have a, a next generation that looks at, the, the, at what happened and says, well, maybe it's still worth the risk. You just sort of like say, you know, this is an unacceptable thing and it will ruin your career or it will ruin your public perception if you do it. And um, so if it, again, if it had been the Toronto Blue Jays in 2018 and it had been released on May 24th of, you know, 2019, like probably we, it would just go into the funnel with all the other cheating scandals and uh, rumors and various uh, examples of, of teams being caught cheating or maybe being caught cheating, but never having a full rigorous accounting of it. But it wasn't. It was this. And mm-hmm. I think now we are clearer than ever, just like after, you know, McGuire and Sosa and Bonds and the Mitchell report and all that, we were clearer than ever that nobody wanted steroids, that it wasn't something where it was going to be a 60-40 issue or where it was going to be like the old school versus the new school or you can do it, but you can't do it too blatantly or anything like that. It's been clarified. No one wants it. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Yeah. So just this week, I, I probably lost track of some things, but we had Charlie Morton, Marwin Gonzalez, Dave Hudgens, Max Stassi, Joe Musgrove, Will Harris. They all weighed in and, and were some degree of contrite about their involvement in the banging scheme or their failure to bring it to anyone's attention. And then Mike Bolsinger sued the Astros for what he thinks is their role in the end of his MLB career. That kind of kept things in the news. There was that A.J. Hinch interview last week, and then Hinch subsequently came out and clarified his non-answer about the buzzer. He denies that there were buzzers, and everyone on the Astros pretty adamantly denied on Thursday that there were any buzzers. Trevor Bauer wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune where he basically said, gee, I wish I weren't so right about the Astros. I knew they were cheaters all along. And then there's also, I think, increasing condemnation of how Manfred has handled this whole thing, both because of what was not included in the report that was subsequently revealed and the revelations that other teams had been complaining to MLB about the Astros' behavior prior to fires coming forward and that MLB had essentially not done anything or not launched an official investigation. I guess it tightened its regulations related to sign stealing because of that, but seemingly was quite content not to make it into a public story. And so Susan Slusser reported that the A's lodged some kind of formal official complaint with MLB prior to all of this blowing up publicly. And again, it just seems very clear that MLB did not want this to be a story. And before a player came forward and before reporters reported it, 
it was just not going to be a story. They were not going to make it a story. And I think that just goes to show that all the people who criticized Fires for saying something and breaking the clubhouse code, I mean, it'd be one thing if he could have gone another route, if he could have complained to MLB first or something, but it seems pretty clear that a lot of people were complaining to MLB about this, and it did not become a story until it was publicly reported, until there was a public whistleblower. So... Regardless of Fires' merits as a person or, or Fires just as an individual, it seems like someone had to say something for this to become the story that it did. So, And I think that kind of makes people question everything. So, you know, obviously there's no actual evidence of buzzers, and now the Astros deny the buzzers, but no one's really going to believe the Astros because they're not credible witnesses because they were cheating the whole time and they weren't telling anyone about it. And so... I think part of the price that they have to pay now is that no one will really believe them about anything, which I think is fair. And so there are people who are never going to believe that there weren't buzzers. I mean, personally, I don't know that buzzers are ethically or morally worse than what they were already doing. (laughs) So to me, it's like they were doing the banging. They were trying to steal every pitch, seemingly, a lot of the time. So the method that they were using to do that, I don't know that it actually makes them look even all that much worse, except that it allows you to pin it on individual players if they were wearing something. Thing and you could establish that but yeah it's just never going to go away and you know everywhere the Astros go this season it's just going to be a circus and there are going to be people showing up to boo them and chant and wear signs or trash can lids or whatever it is it's just going to be kind of a traveling road show and it should be they've brought that upon themselves but it's just going to kind of keep it front of mind I think all season long. If they hadn't used the trash can, if they had not done something that was audible on TV broadcasts, yeah, I, th- I don't think any of this happens. No. I think it, it just gets thrown into the, well, we'll never know muck. Right. I mean, there's tons of cheating scandals, or not scandals, they didn't turn into scandals. Yeah. Rumors, accusations, suspicions over the course of decades of baseball. But uh, because MLB doesn't really want to find out too much, And because without that really good audio, you kind of have a lot of speculation in a one-day story. None of them really took, but that trash can was everything. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, it was just uh, pretty shameless that they did that. I mean, they were so confident that they wouldn't get caught. I just don't understand how nobody noticed it in the moment. How did every team not notice immediately? (laughs) Would we not have noticed? I mean, I know it's a very different thing when you're in a ballpark with 350 people in it mm-hmm. but if someone had been doing that on on Vallejo yeah. wouldn't we have noticed like immediately yeah, I would think I so feel like but... if you heard if you heard a trash can bang four times I think in the course of a single game it would be like what is that we have to figure out what that is yeah I well I think that a probably a lot of players did notice we know that Danny Farquhar did but yeah although that was in late September Yeah, well, there were players talking about that. Like, there was another story in the Washington Post this week about how the Nationals were warned coming into the World Series. Weirdly, like, Cora evidently warned them (laughs) about this. We had already read last postseason there was a story, or after they won the World Series, about how they took countermeasures and precautions and they switched up their signs all the time and they came in prepared and now there's a new story that sort of more explicitly ties that to the suspicions about the Astros and so 
players knew it at some point, like before the public did. And I can only imagine that it was kind of that clubhouse code that was really helping keep it quiet. Because there was even someone, I, I forget, was it? It may have been Farquhar who said at some point, like, I wanted reporters to ask me about it after that game. When he noticed the banging, he was hoping that people would come and ask him about it. And then he would have said something. But he wasn't going to volunteer it. He wasn't going to bring it up. I think that was a big part of it. Just no one wanted to be seen as a snitch or something, even if they were convinced that this other team was cheating. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. If I, I, I'm not totally convinced that there was uh, much awareness of it before Farquhar. Like, that mm-hmm. was the one ex- example that we heard of. It came very late in the yeah. season. Uh, in fact, I don't know what happened in the uh, I don't know what happened in the final week of the season. I don't know if there was a final week of the season, uh, but according to the database of bangs, there were not bangs in the next two games against the Angels, and so that might have actually stopped the banging. Uh, so that might, which would be, you know, which would suggest that that was the first time that the Astros felt caught in the banging. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking here, like you're if you get caught giving signs from second base or you know peeking in the batter's box. Oftentimes, the defense will take action against you. They will throw a pitch at your neck, for instance. Mm -hmm. So, like, I wonder if, uh, I mean, it would be impossible to find the signal in all of this, but, like, I wonder if the Astros got thrown at more that year than other teams in the majors. Uh, If teams Mm -hmm. were doing anything at all, rather than just silently accepting this, if they, in fact, did know. Yeah, well, they did start switching up their signs, at least. Uh, The Astros... Eh, what if this is totally a pointless thing to say but they finished fourth in the american league and hit by pitches mm-hmm. um i don't know why he brought that up well <laughs> it's not... that's another thing that could keep it in the news this year because anytime no, an asterisk hitter does get plunked yeah people will wonder whether it's intentional yeah that's true so On Thursday, they had their chance to try to put this behind them, try to own up to it and placate people, and wouldn't say they did a great job of it. I think most of the bad job was done by Jim Crane. I think if Jim Crane had not spoken or had spoken differently, I think people mostly would have shrugged about the rest of it. You know, it's a a high bar to clear, I think, to change anyone's minds about the Astros because they did what they did. And short of renouncing their title and donating their 2017 salaries to charity or something, I'm not sure that anyone would have their feelings significantly affected by anything they could say. But all 10 players who are still left on the roster from that 2017 team spoke to the press, most of them in the clubhouse in a more informal setting, although Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve spoke at the press conference, and their initial statements were not received very positively. Altuve spoke in a more natural way later on in the clubhouse, but their initial statements seemed kind of canned and brief and robotic. They didn't weep or prostrate themselves, and I think it can be kind of fruitless to try to judge the sincerity of someone's apology or at least to judge the emotion that they are or aren't displaying and these weren't really Brandon Taupman non-apology apologies. They didn't try to deny anything. They didn't try to dodge it. They said they were remorseful. They owned up to it. And I think if that had been it, it probably wouldn't have been a big disaster. And there were some players who spoke at slightly greater length and Carlos Correa spoke and George Springer spoke in the clubhouse and sounded a little less uh, PR speak and massaged. And I think those statements were received a little bit better. 
Correa seemed to be responding pretty directly to a report in The Athletic this week, which was based on anonymous quotes from former Astros players who seemed to pin a ton of the blame on Carlos Beltran, not just for coming up with the banging scheme, but then intimidating everyone into continuing to do it. These anonymous Astros were saying like he was such a, an exalted figure in the clubhouse that no one felt that they could do anything, and we were all just kind of cowed because it was Carlos Beltran. And maybe there was something to that. Like I think when this first came out, we talked about the clubhouse dynamics and why Hinch, for instance, might have been so reluctant to say something. But I think it also does kind of exonerate all the younger players if they just say, oh, well, Carlos Beltran said we had to and we couldn't do anything about it. And Carlos Correa seemed to be both defending Beltran in his statement, but then also not letting himself and the other young Astros off the hook by just saying that any one of them could have spoken up and objected and none of them did. And that it wasn't Carlos Beltran's fault that everyone was complicit in this. But Really, the damage was done by Crane, who started out okay by saying sorry and it was bad and it won't happen again on his watch, but then went beyond that and as he was questioned, just had some lines that were clipped and endlessly tweeted and, you know, he said that uh, he shouldn't be held accountable and that the players aren't at fault, it was the leader's fault and so the players should be absolved, which if that's the case, then what are all the players apologizing for? The one that no one liked, of course, was when he said that uh, it didn't have any impact on the game. And not only did he said that, but then he denied that he had said that like a minute earlier. It was just a mess. I mean, on the one hand, I wouldn't expect him to come out and say, yeah, we won because we cheated. Because uh, I don't think that that's necessarily true. It's just impossible to convince anyone that sign stealing may not have had a huge impact. And he shouldn't have said what he said because it did impact the game. There was an impact, clearly. It, it must have affected the outcome of certain plate appearances and pitches. So there had to be an impact. What he meant, I suppose, was that there wasn't a huge net impact or that they didn't win because of the sign stealing. And he just wouldn't concede that it gave the Astros an advantage. And there's good research suggesting that that may well be true, but you can't convince anyone of that. And you certainly can't if you are the owner of the Astros at a press conference where you're supposed to be apologizing for all this. So just don't even try. Just uh, either don't appear at all or just say, look, we can't know what the impact was. And that's uh, part of the problem with this whole thing is that it casts everything into question. And we had a good team, but it's totally fair for people to uh, doubt that or to question our accomplishments. That's what he had to say, I think, as opposed to protesting. So that was not what this occasion was for. Yeah. It even seemed like Briefly, that maybe Rob Manfred was trying to stop the Astros news cycle by leaking something to Joel Sherman about this wacky new playoff format that MLB is supposedly considering for 2022, because there's no real reason for that story to <laughs> come out right now. It's not even close to 2022. Why are we talking about potential new playoff formats in February, as pitchers and catchers are reporting? Seems like the only reason to do that is to try to derail the larger conversation that was going on, and that didn't work at all. I guess it worked for 12 hours or so. Everyone had their takes about the new playoff format, went right back to all the time Astros after that so nice try I guess mm-hmm okay we'll 
take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Fabian Ardaya to talk about the Angels. Alright, so we are kicking things off today by talking about the team whose results rarely line up well with how interested in them I am and how much of them I watch. That's the Los Angeles Angels, and to talk about the Angels, we are joined now by the man who covers them for The Athletic, Fabian Ardaya, who is speaking to us from the roof at Angels Spring Training, which is an interesting vantage point. Hi Fabian, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, great view up here, though. I gotta say that. <laughs> so you just got out of a press conference that Joe Madden gave, and I guess we can start there. So this is a new spring training, a new team culture. Joe Madden is there. Is anything noticeably different so far? Is he bringing in zoo animals as usual, or has it been pretty low key so far? Uh, it's been pretty low key so far, but it does sound like obviously he wants to get really back in touch with. His history with the Angels, and that involves a lot of Angels alumni. Marcel Lashman's here, obviously. And he already says he has a list of uh, former Angels players that he wants to have out there, Gary Anderson, uh, guys like that. So it sounds like it's going to be a lot more of uh, just sort of embracing that Angels past, I guess, and what he calls the Angels method. Uh, but for now, it seems like it's pretty low-key. Uh, the one thing that I think struck me a little bit today was when we was uh, he was talking with us about how he's actually having individual meetings with players, sort of just trying to integrate himself onto them and then just sort of get to know them a little bit more. So I feel like he's embracing at least that aspect of it so far. But other than that, it's been just a bunch of nostalgia. And do you think there was something specific that the Angels were dissatisfied with, with Brad Osmus? Would they have let him go if Madden had not become available? I mean, was there something specific that they thought Madden could bring to this team? Or was it just, well, it's Joe Madden, so we got to go get him? I think it was more of that. Uh, I think, obviously, Joe Madden, his track record, his pedigree uh, is something that those type of managers aren't available very often. And also, he has a very strong relationship already with ownership with the Angels, with Artie Moreno, with the Angels organization in general, having spent nearly three decades here. So I think it was as much about that than anything else that Brad Austin did necessarily. Obviously, the way that the Angels finished last season, really sliding off in August and September, uh, didn't help Brad Austin's case at all. But I feel like it was more Joe Madden being available than anything necessarily that Brad Austin did specifically. What a lousy deal for Brad Osmus. When's the last time you heard of a manager getting fired after one year? I mean, Rick Renteria, last time Joe Madden got a job. (laughs) That's the one case I can really think about, yeah. So I guess I don't know how much continuity there is between last year and this year, but, you know, it it was kind of a significant thing when Mike Sosha retired and or left the Angels and Brad Osmus took over. And, you know, Sosha's stamp had been on the organization for basically a whole generation and he was uh, one of the most kind of imposing managers within an organization throughout baseball so when he left and when Osmus took over was there much of a change in the organization in in how the organization kind of behaved on the field or the relationship between the front office and the dugout anything that you think would carry over from the Osmus year to the Madden year or was is it going to be like the the Osmus year is just this 
little blip and now Joe Madden takes over the Sosha role as being the, you know, extremely powerful manager who in some ways has, you know, sort of more clout than the front office. Well, I would say it's probably a little bit of a mix of what Austin and social were each able to bring. Because I think uh, Austin's last season, you saw a lot more of like, the front office's way of thinking, sort of implemented into in-game strategy. I think the Angels went to the third time through the order, the least of any team in baseball. Uh, they were very strict with sort of, especially with some of their young pitchers, how deep they were willing to let them get into games. Uh, some of how the lineups were constructed were very analytically based. The way Brad Austin explained a lot of those was saying, like, this was some of what the numbers was telling me, so that's why I built this lineup like that. Obviously, Joe Madden has a reputation, at least in his early days, of being in favor of numbers, but also while still maintaining a lot of some of those old-school mentalities that Mike Sosha had. So I feel like it might be a little bit of a mix. I, obviously, it's a little bit of a reversion to what Sosha did as far as how involved front office is with Billy Epler. But Billy Epler obviously still has constant conversation with uh, Joe Madden. They said that during the season, obviously, they're going to meet after games. Joe has basically said from the start that he's open to input from just about anywhere. So I feel like it'll be somewhat of a mix, especially with Joe coming from a couple organizations, Cubs, the Rays, that at least have embraced analytics a little bit further along than most had for their time. So the Angels had a pretty active offseason, but they almost had a more active offseason because there was a trade that was in place and then was scuttled. The Angels seemed like they were about to acquire Jack Peterson and Ross Stripling as kind of an offshoot of the Mookie Betts trade. And as you reported, it seems that owner Artie Moreno basically was the one who called that trade off, although it's not clear that the Dodgers were as motivated to do it as they would have been under the first incarnation of the Mookie Betts trade. But it seemed like that would fill some holes for the Angels, maybe make them better. So why was it that Moreno decided not to do it, do you think? I feel like it was probably just a little bit of impatience, sort of having to wait around for a week for a trade that wasn't even their trade, because the main reason why that Mookie Betts trade was scuttled at the beginning was obviously the concerns with Bruce Arderall, some of those medicals there. So I feel like maybe you got a little bit impatient with some of how process was going he wanted to get the trade done and if not he just wanted to move on and should be able to look elsewhere to try to add pitching wherever it was possible so i feel like he sort of didn't want to wait anymore called it off but as you said uh, and as i wrote it seemed like even if the dodgers if the angels wanted to re-engage with the dodgers it didn't seem like the dodgers were as motivated to bring up those talks again especially considering they didn't have as much of a need to offload salary, which would be the main incentive in trading Jack Peterson. And then obviously Ross Stripling was the main, would have been the main reason why the Angels would have wanted to do that trade because he would instantly uh, improve the rotation and been a pretty valuable starter for them this season if they had acquired him. Wait, uh, so this is all very weird because they didn't improve the pitching in the week since. It's not like they took advantage of this week-long period to go elsewhere and get other pitching. Are, are there other... What do you call that thing? Pokers in the fire? What do, what do you put in the fire? Something in the fire? Irons. Are, <laughs> irons in the fire. Are they are they still actively pursuing pitching improvement? Because it felt like like that was all kind of done. And then when when Ross Stripling sort of fell into their laps, it was like, oh well, that's a that seems like a good thing. That's an an upgrade where it didn't seem like they were going to be able to make any more upgrades. So are they going to make any more upgrades, or it, did they just decide like they're done? Billy Epler said that they don't have anything active right now, but 
I can see that where they wouldn't want to potentially improve starting pitching if they can get it done. But I think the biggest thing is, obviously, there's not a lot of free agents starting pitching left. This isn't how free agency went the last couple of years. There aren't any major options left. Uh, so that means their best option is be a trade. I think if there's anything that this Ross Stripling trade uh, shows, it's really hard to make a trade, especially with where the Angels are at with their farm system. A lot of the most enticing prospects via trade are people that are on the brink of making the major leagues, guys like Joe Dell, Brandon Marsh. And those are guys probably the Angels would ideally want to keep and keep as part of the future. So Billy Epler hasn't traded a lot from his farm system uh, in his time with the Angels. And he said he's open to it now, but obviously it's about which prospects are the right prospects they want to part ways with and what will get appeal in the open market. I mean, they were active in trying to trade for Corey Kluber, but the Indians asked for something that was a little more steep. I heard that Grant Marsh might have been involved in some of those uh, negotiations, and then all of a sudden the Indians trade him for a reliever in the line of the shield. So uh, it's all really complicated how other teams will view the Angels' farm system and what they'll be able to get via trade. But to answer your original question, like, I feel like they probably would want to try to still acquire starting pitching. It's just a matter of whether it would happen now or whether they try to see if they're competitive and make a run at someone at the deadline. I mean, obviously, uh, a run scored is is as valuable as a run prevented. And so the Angels went into this offseason looking to improve, and they went out and they got Anthony Rendon, who will add a bunch of, of runs scored and, and is a great player. But there was just such an emphasis, I think, before the offseason on the Angels' pitching needs and, and, and how aggressively they were going to pursue some of these top pitchers. So curious how much of a, well, uh, maybe it wasn't at all, so that's a leading question, but how much of a shock was it when it was Anthony Rendon who was being announced and not, you know, one of the top two pitchers or or maybe some other top pitcher acquired in trade as the Angels' big move? It definitely was surprising when it was Anthony Rendon, especially when it was the Angels who got Anthony Rendon, but I feel like Given how the Angels' uh, offseason played out, I mean, they met with Zach Wheeler, who signed elsewhere. They met with Steven Strasburg, who re-signed with the Nationals. And they met with Garrett Cole, and they knew that they wanted to pursue Garrett Cole from the very beginning. But obviously, they got outbid by the Yankees. But looking back at it now, it, it makes some sense, considering, obviously, Artie Moreno has long had an affinity for Anthony Rendon. And it, like you mentioned, the run is added the same as the run prevented. And... Billy Upper explained, like, there's only so many chances where you get to add a player with the certainty and impact of an Anthony Rendon. And if the Angels were going to have a chance to get that guy, they might as well try to get him. So, obviously, it w- this wasn't the offseason the Angels, I imagine, envisioned from the very outset. I mean, I don't think they were planning on adding an all-star third baseman, having their only pitching addition being Dylan Bundy and Julio Tehran. But they were able to still add to the starting pitching. I would say that those two guys are an upgrade over to their acquisitions last year, Matt Harvey and Trevor Cahill. And also they were able to add Anthony Rendon. They were also able to add Jason Castro to boost their catching. So I feel like on the whole, they certainly improved this winter. Uh, and they found a way to do that, even if it wasn't their original plan. Yeah, so the rotation as it stands now and as it seems likely to stand on opening day is not an encouraging collection of names, really. You've got Tehran, you've got Andrew Haney, you've got Bundy, you've got Griffin Canning, you've got Patrick Sandoval. I don't know if anyone else is in the mix there. They also acquired Matt Andrees, who has made some starts in his career. So other than Otani, who should be back sometime in May, and we'll ask you about him soon, of course, 
who in that rotation offers the most hope, I guess? Is there anyone in there that you can actually envision being a dependable mid-rotation or, or number two type guy when Otani is not starting? I really am high on Griffin Canning. I have been thinking of the prospect. Uh, he really seemed like he, last season, is sent in the major leagues. Uh, he pitched well for the most part. He had a couple bad outings. One was in relief against the Orioles in the 16-inning game. That was really weird. The other one was his first start immediately after the passing of Tyler Skaggs, and he was someone who was very close with Tyler, and you could see he was very emotional afterwards. But other than that, he pitched particularly well, and he seemed really be able to, first of all, miss that. And second of all, when his opponents did make contact against him, he was good at getting soft contact. And that's a combination I think the Angels are really high on. Uh, I know they're trying to be cautious with how optimistic they are about him, just considering he is so young, he had an elbow issue that ended his season last year, but they're still really optimistic about his ability to possibly be a front of the rotation type guy. And maybe not an ace, but one of those uh, mid-rotation number two type guys for their future behind Otani. And then the, the rotation, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, obviously you mentioned the five guys that'll start the season, but they, they, ha- they have some optimism with some of their young starters, like Sandoval, Jaime Perea, Jose Suarez, that they'll be better this season than they were last year, mostly because they feel like last year, they sort of had to come up and pitch because they needed somebody to get the innings, and now they feel like development-wise, they're able to continue accelerating and that they can possibly learn from that experience. And Mr. Matt Andres, yeah, he'll he'll be stretched out as a starter for at least this spring, and they'll see what happens from there. And Felix Pena, who is probably their best, most consistent pitcher last year, the bulk guy often behind an opener, uh, he'll probably be back from opening day after tearing his ACL last year. So like, they'll have options. It's maybe not the most exciting group options, but they'll have options and at least appear to have depth to start the season that so they're not left in a position like they were last year where they're really just trying to get innings from wherever they can get them. Yeah, this is I think this is going on like five years in a row now where the preseason projections for the Angels were kind of like a mix of of optimistic and and more realistic. And the optimistic notion was always well if they can manage to get their rotation healthy and through the entire year, they could be a pretty good team. And, and that has never happened in any of those years. They've just had injuries upon injuries. And, and then when they've brought in some sort of uh, flyer picks, those flyers have, have turned fairly disastrous. That covers multiple front offices, multiple managers, multiple regimes. I'm sure that the player development systems have, have been overturned to varying degrees over those five years. Is there anything that you think is a consistent factor in those failures or is it just a matter of kind of being snake bit and having a lot of things go wrong with a lot of pitchers in ways that you know some team's going to be the unlucky team uh, i'm sure there are a lot of angels fans who feel like their club is snake bit and i feel like they maybe have a little bit of an argument there because there's a lot of randomness in some of these injuries uh but also i feel like it's sort of a product maybe of where the angels payroll has stuck them in recent years i mean they obviously are have moved past the big contracts for Josh Hamilton, CJ Wilson, but they were often in a position, especially early in Billy Apple's tenure, uh, where they sort of had to take chances on riskier guys because those were the guys that they could acquire in order to get the upside that they could hope where they could have a solid rotation. And that's something that obviously hasn't worked out well for the Angels. I mean, they've had a couple of uh, brief glimmers where it's worked. I mean, J.C. Ramirez seemed like he would be a great find for them off a waiver claim, and then all of a sudden he tore his uh, UCL, needed Tommy John surgery, and now he's out of baseball. So they've, they've had a lot of stories 
that are a lot like that that they've had to rely on. I think this year with how they built the rotation a little bit, some of their additions at least, it seems like what Dylan Bundy and Julio Tehran can bring that other guys haven't in the past is some form of durability. And of course, there's a chance that one of them could obviously get hurt tomorrow and this is all moot. But the fact that both of them have at least been able to post every five days uh, and provide 180 innings or so, that's something that alone would be a big bonus to the Angels. Just 150, uh, 160 league average innings would be a major boost to not only the rest of the rotation and not calling on maybe some of the young starters like I mentioned before, but also for the bullpen not being able to have to eat so many innings so they can improve as well. I feel like it's been a lot of like a domino effect with some of the starters not being able to go deep. It hurts the bullpen and their offense starts to go uh, wrong all at the same time. That's where the Angels have really fallen off in recent years. So we've shown incredible restraint in not asking about Otani yet. I'm going to stop resisting now. This is the Otani question, or or at least the first Otani question. So this week, we got the official wording and ruling from MLB on the two-way player designation, and it appears that that ruling was written in such a way that it specifically allows Shohei Otani and no one else to qualify as a two-way player this year. And in fact, it seems like it makes it difficult for anyone but Otani to ever qualify for this, but that's a separate question. So Otani can be a two-way player when he comes back. When should we expect him to be back? What's a realistic expectation for his workload as a pitcher and as a hitter this year? And I know that Joe Madden has mentioned on a couple of occasions that he might be open to having him hit on the days that he pitches. Do you think that will happen? And should it? Does it even make sense? Uh, as of right now, uh, Shohei Otani's timeline is for about mid-May. And then when we were talking to Shohei, uh, just the other day, and he said that if he knew that they wanted wanted him ready for opening day, he feels like health-wise he would be able to. I feel like this is a part of trying to manage his innings but from the front end as opposed to maybe the Steven Strasburg way, maybe at the end, shutting him down. So they want to be able to manage his innings that way. He hasn't thrown more than 100 innings in a single season since 2016, obviously. So that's what the plan is for right now. He's probably going to start throwing bullpens again in mid-March and then be able to work his way through. And there's actually another part of that new rule that Billy Epler mentioned is now when Shohei Otani is going through his rehab and if he's going to make any rehab starts, which he probably will, he doesn't have to go on the injured list to do so. He basically can be on the major league roster one day and go down to a minor league affiliate, throw a rehab game, and come back up the very next day and be back in the lineup. The only thing is the Angels are going to be down a player for that one game when he's down in the minor league. And even then, it's a 25-man roster now with the expanded roster. So uh, Billy Epler said that's kind of perfect timing for that rule. That's going to be the plan for Otani. I think the plan for right now, it seems like he'll be still on the same pitching schedule he was before he got hurt, which we be pitching about once a week, uh, which means maybe a six-man rotation at different points, and then with off days, maybe a five-man rotation here and there. And then I think the plan for right now, at least, is to have him still hit the four times a week he was doing before, having the days off four and after he pitches. Uh, as far as him hitting and pitching on the same day, Joe Madden, I feel like that's something he definitely wants to try to do. And Shohei said that he's open to it. It's something he's done in the past in Japan on a handful of occasions for regular season and postseason games. I think the biggest hurdle, obviously, will be managing his health and his workload. Uh, and that might be the only thing that's sort of restricting Otani being able to do that is making sure he's not taking on too much, especially when he's coming off knee and elbow surgery and had an ankle surgery the year before. So and the biggest thing, obviously, for the Angels this year with Otani is making sure he gets through it healthy. 
he's been fairly strictly platooned in his career. And in particular, my recollection is in 2018, there was really a sense that he wasn't very good against lefties, that he was overmatched, that it wasn't a good idea for him to play against lefties. He did much better against lefties last year and did not look like a player with a large platoon split at all. Did you get a sense that that was an improvement that he made or just that the two small splits in 2018 and 2019 both were somewhat misleading and that the truth is just kind of somewhere in the middle? 2018, I feel like he definitely acknowledged it was something that was an issue for him and that's something he was working on. And it's something that confused him, obviously, because he felt like he had hit lefties pretty well in Japan. Uh, last year, I feel like he felt a little bit more comfortable. I think a part of it also was just seeing it and seeing it consistently. Last um, When he first came up in 2018, uh, they saw the platoon also as a way to get out pools, some extra bats as a designated hitter. So maybe Otani limited exposure to left-handed pitchers maybe contributed to his bad platoon split there. Uh, but last year, obviously, he got a lot more passes at DH, spending the full season as a hitter. And I think going forward, I feel like they feel more comfortable with him facing left-handed pitchers as a designated hitter, even with Albert Pujols in the lineup. Because I feel like Albert, with Albert Pujols' health where it is right now and where they say it is, they feel comfortable with him playing uh, first base close to wherever he was last year, which was close to about 90 games or so. So I feel like they feel more comfortable with him facing lefties, but obviously if they are going to give him a day off, it will probably come against the left-hander. So Ginny Searle in her BP annual essay about the Angels pointed out something that I hadn't realized, which is that the Angels have drawn more than 3 million fans every year since they won the World Series back in 2002, which is a pretty incredible streak given how mediocre the team has been in a lot of those years. And even in 2019, as the Angels had their worst season since the 90s, they still drew more than 3 million fans. They were second in the AL in attendance. And I wonder why you think that is, because, you know, Angel Stadium is not exactly known as one of the the great cathedrals of baseball, I wouldn't say. And the team was not doing well for a lot of the season. I think it's one of the more watchable teams in baseball just because of Trout and Simmons and Otani. But is that it? Is it that they have these stars that are actually putting people in the seats or is there something else to it? I think that's part of it. I think them signing Shohei Otani pretty much guaranteed that they'd be locked in with the Japanese fan base for as long as he's an angel and maybe beyond. But I think also part of it is, like, obviously, it's Southern California. The weather's great. Uh, the tickets are a lot cheaper than, say, at Dodger Stadium or even probably at Petco Park. So, like, just the accessibility of the stadium. And also, I mean, Disneyland's not that far away. So, I feel like the combination of that there, especially for road fans wanting to visit, it seems like just an easy overall experience for angels of fans and for visiting fans to show up to Angel Stadium. I feel like also the chance to see Trout, chance to see Otani, Simmons, some of these exciting players is something that obviously is a draw. Yeah, that's kind of a, it's almost like a control group or something because we talk all the time about why is attendance down and what are the factors there. And some people will say, well, it's tanking. And other people will say, well, it's ticket prices. And other people will say, oh, it's just fun to watch games at home now and it's too much trouble to go to the games. And so I guess you could say that the Angels show that having some stars and also having low ticket prices maybe goes a long way, you know, even if the team isn't doing all that well. And I guess it's also partly that it's not as if the Angels have tanked. They have not had the results that they wanted, but they have tried. They have spent. They usually make some sort of off-season splash. So even though everything goes wrong every year, they do at least make an effort. Yeah, definitely. I mean, ownership is always sort of invested in the team, for better or worse, when it comes to some of these contracts. I feel like 
they've never really bottomed out. Their worst record in 20 years was this past season. They still won 72 games. Like, they're not being the Orioles or Royals. Either. They still have only picked in the top 10 twice in the last few years. And obviously one of those guys was Joe Adele, who's a big part of why Angels fans are so excited for the future now. So I feel like they've managed to do pretty well when it terms in terms of being able to get those big names on their roster at the very least. And that I'm sure carries some cachet, at least with the casual fans. I want to probably dwell on this more than the uh, average listener wants to hear about it because I have always been really fascinated by the Angels' attendance. And looking at it now, I'm, I've underrated how bizarrely consistent it has been. So in the last three years, their total attendance has been within a 1,000, a range of 1,000. It's 3,019,000, 3,020,000, and then 3,019,000. And in the last five years... It has not ranged more than 8,000, so 3,012,000 is the low and 3,020,000 is the high. And in the last eight years, it hasn't ranged more than about 80,000, so from 3,012,000 to 3,095,000. So that's all basically rounding to the same to the same point, and that's despite a lot of variation in a lot of key details, right? So they in that range, in that eight-year period, they had a a year where I think they had the best record in the American League, maybe even in the major leagues. The next year, they only missed the playoffs by three games. And they had, you know, the the economy has changed a great deal in that time. Their preseason expectations, I think, have changed. There have been years where they were disappointing, but they looked good at the beginning. And then there have been years like last year where they were essentially out of it for the final three months. They weren't in a race at all. And yet it has somehow stayed really consistent and I don't know if that's because they have managed to just have an entertaining product and a sense that they were like, if you look at almost every year in that period, they did something in the off season that made you think, ah, well, last year was bad, but this year will be good. And of course, almost all the years then turned out to be bad, but there was always some pretty good signing or, or acquisition or package of acquisitions like Rendon this year. And so I wonder how much of it is just that the season ticket sales are banked. I, I know that there are a lot of games that I look out and think, well, that is definitely a smaller attendance than the announced crowd. And so maybe they're just banking a lot of season tickets. Or if all these different factors are kind of canceling each other out so that the economy is helping ticket sales go up while the team's fundamentals go down. I don't really know. I'm just looking at this and thinking of how odd it is that they don't seem to be uh, fluctuating the way that other teams do. And also, just to, to note, it's not like 3,090,000 is the peak. They're not selling out every game. They've drawn 3.5 million in the past and 3.4 million and 3.3. They've just settled into this very steady, <laughs> this very steady attendance range that doesn't fluctuate no matter how good or how bad they get. So I guess, okay, I need to ask you a question. If they win the division this year, will it go up? Well, <laughs> I'm sure it might go up a little bit. I mean, like like you mentioned, it goes, can go up to like a 3-4 or 3-5 in years past. Uh, yeah, they do have a really strong season ticket base uh, that they can bank on every year. And I think that's a big reason why they get the $3 million. Especially, I mean, there's a lot of times where in August, September last year, there weren't a lot of people in the stands, and I didn't blame them. But... Yeah, I mean, they have a strong core fan base that they rely on, at least that's maybe a more casual fan base. Maybe I wouldn't necessarily categorize themselves as like a diehard fan base for the most part, as far as like being Angels being a baseball, real like traditional power as far as fan bases go. But like they have a good fan base that comes out year after year. And 
season ticket holders really help a lot with that. You mentioned Joe Adele, and it's not exactly like he's knocking down the door. He just got to AAA toward the end of last season and didn't set the league on fire. But I think a lot of fans are looking forward to seeing him because the Jack Peterson trade was not completed. It seems like there's a little bit of an opening there in the outfield. So what does he have to do to get the call and show he's ready? And I guess what should fans' expectations be about how much they're going to see him in the majors this year? Well, Billy Upler said the door is open for him to make the opening day roster, but I feel like that it isn't likely for him to be on the opening day roster. I feel like they feel comfortable uh, with Brian Goodwin, at least to start the season in the right field. He had a really strong year last year, even though he struggled a lot in September. He basically took over left field when Justin Upton got hurt to start the year and kept hitting from that point on. And he probably is good enough at least to hold up in right field until they feel Joe Adele is ready. Uh, they have some other outfielders who have already broken through to the big leagues, like Taylor Ward and Michael Hermosillo, who they could probably make do with until Adele is ready. And I feel like, for now, the concerns with Adele maybe aren't necessarily as much as the batter's box, because I know the numbers weren't great in AAA. But the way he, he's gone with his progression so far in his career, he's always seemed to struggle the first couple weeks at a new level and then really start to get his feet under him and start hitting well. And that's sort of what they feel could happen at AAA this year. Uh, the bigger the other thing that they have to worry about is him defensively. I know they know he's a great athlete, but they're moving him over to right field to a corner outfield spot because Mike Trout signed his extension. So they want to make sure that he's able to handle some of these angles. Um, basically, whenever he was at the Arizona Fall League and also with Premier 12, the Team USA, they wanted to incur- the one uh, stipulation with they had was just try to play him in the corners as much as possible just so he can get those extra reps out there. I feel like that's the thing that they want to see from him for now. And I get that defense as the reason for not someone not being ready for the big league scream service time manipulation. I'm not saying that's what happened with the, what's happening with the angels here, but it's something that you could see him them waiting until May or so, or at least like, so they also break premium the latest uh, for Joe Adele to be up in the big leagues. And that's, there's going to be a little bit of a wait, but I feel like he'll, He'll debut this year, then Brandon Marsh, maybe the year after that. We're not going to ask every guest we talk to who's covering a team in spring training what that team has said about the Astros and their apologies or lack thereof, but you're with the Angels, and the Angels are obviously in the same division as the Astros. There's also a former Astro in camp, Max Stasi, so you can kind of be representative of the, the team response across baseball. I guess, what is the Angels' mood? What have they said about the Astros, and how are they feeling about all of that? Uh, well, Max Stasi apologized, and he became, the, I think, he was the second position player to do so behind Marvin Gonzalez. And the rest of the Angels uh, used some colorful language to describe how they feel about the Astros. Basically, they felt cheated. They felt like they weren't remorseful. Some of the reactions, even when the Astros gave their formal apology on Thursday morning, was, was just sort of saying, like, well, that's their apology. That's it. Because uh, they waited months and months for the Astros to say something, and they hadn't. And they were upset about that. I know Andrew Heaney was very vocal about it, sort of talking about how not understanding how no one could stand up and say, this is wrong, don't do this. We should stop doing this. Also, just wondering what could have happened during the game. I feel like they were all in agreement saying, like, stealing signs in general, as far as, like, from second base or being able to know what a pitcher's tells are, tips, and being able to discuss that among teammates. It's a completely fair game. But when they, as soon as they cross that line with the technology, that's what's taking it way too far. And that's where they sort of feel cheated. And they feel like, I know Taylor Cole, uh, who's a reliever for the Angels, he posted something on Instagram earlier this week just sort of talking about how 
he feels cheated. He felt like as someone who's been up and down the big leagues, the minors a lot, it could have been him that was directly Im- impacted something like that. So that some of the buzzers allegations or stuff that he felt was completely true. Like just all kinds of stuff where they felt like there wasn't enough answers in the commissioner's report from the Astros. And they feel like there's still so much more that they need to know to feel good about what the Astro, like that the Astros situation is moved on. So I feel like they're, they're definitely very uh, upset and irritated right now with Major League Baseball and with the Astros' handling of this investigation and sort of how they've handled the month since everything came out. And speaking of MLB investigations, is the investigation into whether Angels team personnel provided opioids to Tyler Skaggs or were aware of that opioid use, is that still ongoing? Is there an expectation of when that might conclude? And is the fact that that is still kind of hanging over the team something that is weighing on the players or preventing them from moving on from that situation? As far as I know, it's still currently an ongoing investigation with the DEA. And what the MLB's plan is after that is once the DEA completes the investigation, MLB will conduct its own investigation and release findings then. I'm not sure what the timeline is right now for the DEA investigation. But, I mean, obviously, it's still something that's happening. It's still ongoing. Uh, maybe it's an, not as openly talked about as some of the Astros stuff going on, and that's understandable with how that's happened. But, I mean, obviously, Tyler Skaggs' presence is still very much felt throughout the organization. So many of his closest friends, teammates, are still obviously with the team. Andrew Heaney, who was one of his best friends, took his old locker here in Tempe. Ashley got a Skaggs memorial tattoo on his uh, right wrist. I think Felix Payne might have gotten a Skaggs tattoo as well. So, obviously, he's very much like part of what the Angels are going forward. And he's been with that. Obviously, the organization is still mourning and still trying to figure out the next steps. But it, it, it was a terrible situation. And we still obviously don't know the extent of it until the DA and MLB investigations are out. All right, so let's wrap up as usual with the win total prediction. We've got a lot of new names and faces in camp. You've got Anthony Rendon, you've got Jason Castro, you've got the pitchers we've talked about. Will it be enough? Where do you think that gets the Angels this year? I think I said 83 wins last year, so I was really off. <laughs> this year, I, I don't even know where I'm going to go. I think, I think I settled around 85 wins. That feels about right. I know some projection systems have met. 87, I saw one at like 92, but I feel like as far as I want to play it safe as far as where the rotation can be, I feel like 85, 86 wins uh, feels about safe. So I'll, I'll say 85 to be on the safe side. All right. And if that's the case, and probably they would miss the playoffs again, is that something like, do you think there's ever a point where Mike Trout would get visibly upset? <laughs> like, is he ever going to come out and, I don't know, slam the organization for not getting him to the playoffs? Or is he just perpetually going to be the, the good representative and face of the organization? I don't think Mike Trout ever gets to the point of being publicly uh, upset with where the Angels are at. I know he is very much someone who believes in where this current front office direction is going. At least he was last year when he signed his extension. That's the interesting part of this is that if the Angels don't make the postseason, what that means for Billy Epler going forward, he's obviously going to the last year of his contract. I think that's when maybe there could be, if there is going to ever be a point where Mike Trout, uh, at least privately, starts to have some doubts about where the Angels' future is at, that would be where it's at. But I don't think he'd ever say anything publicly. 
All right. Well, you can follow the Angels all season long at The Athletic and read Fabian's writing there. You can also follow him on Twitter at his name, Fabian Ardaya. Thank you very much for joining us and congratulations on not falling off the roof. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I made it. (laughs) Okay, time for another quick break. We'll be back in just a moment with Will Leach to discuss the Cardinals. We are back and we are joined by Will Leach of MLB.com and New York Magazine and Seeing Red, the Cardinals podcast and many other outlets. Hello, Will. Uh, hello, sir. An honor, as always, to uh, to get on this podcast series. I was one of the 99% of the people that voted to bring back the series, uh, much to the <laughs> annoyance of both of you. So I'm well, glad to be on. Self-serving, I guess, because you just got yourself on the podcast, although now you have to talk more. But uh, I know talking about the Cardinals is not something that you consider a tough lot racket. of labor. Yeah, well, so. Let's call this a work. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have been podcasting about the Cardinals, but I guess they haven't really given you much to podcast <laughs> about this winter. It has been a, an extraordinarily inactive Cardinals offseason. They're right up there or down there with the other teams that have made the fewest transactions, at least involving major league players. So was this sort of what you expected or what you think the Cardinals set out to do? Or has it been surprising and not quite the plan that they haven't ended up doing all that much? No, I think this was the plan all along. Uh, you know, they gave their end of the year press conference after the NLCS. And, you know, every team, of course, does the, the uh, as everyone's packing up and, and leaving, they had, and Moselock was there and Bill DeWitt was there and Schultz was, uh, was there. And anyway, they were all there. And the whole vibe of the press conference after the, you know, remember the Cardinals, after just not only got swept by the Nationals, but scored negative four runs in the, in, in the, in the series, the whole vibe was basically, you're welcome, Cardinals fans. I hope you enjoyed that. And it really, there seemed to be, and on one hand, you understand in that, you know, the Cardinals had not made the playoffs for a few years. There'd been much frustration. They'd fired their manager. There'd been all this frustration. And then they made it. Then they made the playoffs and they, they won the, they won a series. They won the division and they made the LCS. And so there was a general, uh, you, you, I think that there was a disconnect between the front office and the fan and, and the fan base. And the front office was very much so like, there, this is what you wanted. Please congratulate us. And that is not the way the press conference went, but they made it kind of very clear not only were they happy with their team they really felt that um, a lot of their key players underperformed in 2019 in a way that they're not going to in 2020 so no uh, I wasn't expecting them to make it I think they should have I think they should have brought in some stuff particularly in the outfield but they didn't and I think this uh, it's not a surprise they've kind of made it pretty clear that uh, uh, they felt like this team should have been better than it was in 2019 and will be better in 2020, kind of as is. All right. I have a couple questions coming out of that. One, uh, did you enjoy it? I mean, how? <laughs> I, I actually am curious because the, the, the Cardinals have, have had a four-year run that we rarely see anymore, which is a team that is like squarely in contention consistently, but not really like moving toward any great shakes beyond that and so they had three years where they were 
you know, in it to the end, above average team, winning records, and then they didn't make the playoffs. And then they had last year where they made the playoffs, but they were, you know, pretty clearly the worst playoff team, except for maybe the Brewers. And so as a Cardinals fan, I guess it's different if you're a Cardinals fan than if you're like a Brewers fan or a Padres fan where you've never seen a World Series. The Cardinals have, of course, given you many World Series in your life. Is a four-year run like this kind of like okay? And was last year kind of really awesome? Or is it sort of just like, are, are you lulled into complacency or, or whatever? No, I think the front office is. I think the fan base, I have to tell you, is probably as upset with the Cardinals as I can uh, remember since, since probably the pre-Tony La Russa days and like the dog the, the 90s when they had that horrible manager Joe Torre that they fired they ended up never doing anything uh, uh, after that I, the people are really upset I think there's several reasons for that uh, one uh, is actually kind of an off the field thing which is you know they've built Ballpark Village uh, which is this you know I think you've seen this a lot in baseball this little area around Bush Stadium where uh, everything is owned by the Cardinals and it's all really expensive and it's all like and there's like $10 Bud Lights and you can and you can have really bad sushi and just like really like it's just but there's a whole entertainment complex that has really kind of dominated downtown St. Louis has driven out a lot of local business and has also been a huge, huge moneymaker for the Cardinals, like I mean, in a massive way, along with the new television contract they got. There was an understanding with that that there would be an increase, uh, not only increased expenditures, but like a real dedication to trying to get the Cardinals back uh, on, on trying to win World Series on a regular basis. You've seen a lot of inactivity in that regard. I think it's somewhat unfair to call the Cardinals cheap. I mean, they paid for, for I think it's just they made a lot of very poor moves. Chester Fowler was a bad contract, but the Matt Carpenter would Contract, which hasn't actually started yet, will actually start this year, uh, looks bad. Brett Cecil famously uh, was one of their worst contracts. So I think there's been a lot of frustration in that not just they haven't spent money, but they've clearly, like, from the beginning, been like, we're not doing Harper. Uh, we're not doing, we're not, we're not in any of these big guys. This is just, this is out of our price range for a team that has you know, kind of an un, uh, uh, un, almost unparalleled uh, number of people that go to their games in local obsession. It feels like the fan base has become more obsessed with the Cardinals than the team is. Uh, to me, one of the most remarkable things. I was at game one of the ALCS and I saw some some media colleagues around there and they just come back from the NL, the, uh, the NLCS and they could not believe, the LDS, and they could not believe that there were empty seats at a Cardinals playoff game. And there were. And it's really pretty wild. And I think it, it speaks to the frustration that yes, Cardinal fans are absolutely spoiled. There is no question about that. And I, and I think the, the front office would argue well, you know, uh, sure, sure. Uh, we we were probably the worst team to make the playoffs in the Brewers last year, but we've got a chance to make the playoffs again this uh, this year, and we'll have another chance next year. And we've had we didn't make it the last couple of years, but we've had chances the last few years. Whereas you look at a team like the Brewers, the Brewers are like, okay, we better do this now while we have Yellis before we fall off the cliff. The Pirates had their window, and now it's completely gone. Who knows what the Cubs are doing? The Cardinals' argument is always, uh, we are trying to contend every year. But it, it kind of implicit in that argument is, we are trying to contend every year. But that's kind of all we're trying to do. <laughs> we're trying to like contend and do just enough to be in that 89 to 92 win thing. And I think it can be frustrating, uh, particularly, I think a lot of st- this too has to do with the Cubs and the Cubs really went for it. The Reds are now winning for it away. Division rivals are going for it. The Cardinals never go for it. And I think there's a level of frustration with that. So, okay. So the other thing is if they had, let's say they had narrowly missed the playoffs, if they'd won 88 games instead of 91. And if they had uh, missed the playoffs by a game instead of making them by two games, do you think that they would have gone into the offseason with totally different plans, the, uh, pressure to go do something? And and if the answer to that is yes, which maybe it won't be, and you can disregard this part of the question, but if the answer is yes, 
Is there any part of last season that you wish they hadn't made the playoffs so that they would feel the pressure to go sign the players that you would prefer they sign, perhaps? I am definitely glad that they made the playoffs, and I'm definitely glad that it happened. I was at Game 5 of the braves Cardinal series, and people have always asked me, like, what is your favorite sports fan experience? And they always want to say, like, what was it? Was it seeing the 2011 Game 6, or was it seeing Illinois in the Final Four and all of these things? And I always tell them, no, because those things are only fun later. At the time, they're miserable. The Cardinals scored 10 runs in the first inning of a game, and we just sat and drank and laughed for the next three hours. Like, I will not give up that experience uh, for anything. But I do think there is something to the idea that what pressure they would have felt if they had not made it. And, you know, you saw uh, that you've seen them make adjustments. Frankly, I do not think they ever wanted to fire Mike Matheny. Bill DeWitt loves Mike Matheny. I think the pre- I think he really felt like he was going to figure it all out. And I think that he felt the, the public pressure kind of got so much that he kind of couldn't ignore it. I think that you saw that a little bit with the not, not so much the Paul Goldschmidt trade, but the Paul Goldschmidt extension. Uh, I think you saw that. I think the Dexter Fowler free agency is something they probably would have preferred not to do, but felt like they had to uh, in a way. So, yeah, I think if they had not made the playoffs, I think you might have seen them push more for a Rendon. I think Rendon would have been the type of guy. Or maybe they, uh, maybe last year, uh, maybe they, they pushed harder for a potential Arenado trade, though I don't think that was ever something that was ever probably going to happen. But, yeah, I think you would see them push harder. Should they have? I think you would have liked to see them make the bigger moves. But personally, I I would not give up an NLCS appearance for for a change in strategy across the board. No, <laughs> even a sweep, it's still an NLCS appearance. Is, is they were they were they were there. I saw them get at least four hits. <laughs> right, I think that was that was about it. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of that, I guess the offense was kind of the problem when they got to that point last year, and that was partly because some of the veteran Cardinals didn't really produce. Matt Carpenter had a down year. Molina had a down year and got hurt a little bit, and Goldschmidt was not quite the boon to the lineup that he was expected to be and there are young guys who came along and helped prop things up but is there much optimism in the old guard kind of having one more good year in them or is there a sense that you know and I don't know that uh, we should equate Carpenter and and Goldschmidt let's say but do you think there's a, a bounce back in some of those guys coming or will it just be continued decline? I think, I mean, it's a really remarkable how much they're counting on Matt Carpenter to be himself again uh, this year. Not not just uh, not just that, uh, because they didn't go out after some of some of the third basemen, but I mean, he is that that is the central tenet to what they're saying they're going to be better this year is that Matt Carpenter is going to go back to being an all star and 380, 390 OPS guy on, on base guy uh, by science or magic. Like one of those things are going to happen. They're absolutely convinced of it, and the whole offense kind of relies on that uh, on. on him being able to do that, I think you can you can squint a little bit and and see bounce backs for someone like Fowler. Like Dexter Fowler was really good for uh, like when the Cardinals made that run in August and in, in September that basically won the division for them and culminated in that wonderful series where they beat the Cubs five times in Wrigley Field in like like an hour and a half. That that was a lot often fueled by Dexter Fowler batting leadoff and really looking like the old Dexter Fowler. Now he really struggled in the playoffs. Everyone struggled in the playoffs. Paul Goldschmidt, particularly in the playoffs. I find myself almost more worried about 
Carpenter and Goldschmidt than Fowler, which is to say that Fowler Fowler's baseline at this point uh, is that they're not completely relying on Fowler. If he really struggles, they have a million other outfielders that are that they can they can toss out there. Uh, to me, Goldschmidt uh, Goldschmidt taking a step uh, a minor step back and Carpenter taking a big step back. They're really counting on both of those guys, and uh, particularly Carpenter. The, the whole offense seems to rely on Carpenter. Uh, Molina uh, again. We, I feel like we've kind of gotten back to uh, when Yadi Molina was f- first came up when Tony LaRusso said, if he bats 180, he'll still be in my lineup every day. Right. And did you like my Tony LaRusso uh, uh, first? <laughs> Spot on. Yeah. yeah, I nailed it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think we are getting back to that reign of Yadi or Molina where any offense you get feels like a bonus. Uh, I think the I, I think the big difference is that the defense is not what it was in uh, in 2006. But nevertheless, uh, he's going to be in the lineup. I think having Matt Wieters, he was really good for the Cardinals last year and I think having him back helps but yeah you're counting on a lot of older guys you're also counting on Tommy Edmond to just do what he did in August and September again and uh, uh, there's really not a lot a big track record of seeing that in the minor league so they're, they're, they're definitely counting on not just old players to bounce back but also young players oh man you said something about Tommy Edmond that that didn't yeah. make me happy. Yeah. I, I like Tommy Edmond. I like Tommy. <laughs> I, listen, I like Tommy Edmond too. But like it, to me, he's kind of indicative of the problem. Like if you go to uh, to Cardinals Russell Resource right now, uh, which I finally my browser's finally going to Fangraphs first and not to the old one. I finally I finally getting it to go to that one now that it's switched over. But I would say that uh, like he's listed as a, as a left fielder right now, uh, and I think that's very possible. He's going to be the left fielder on opening day. That's a bad sign. Like maybe Tommy Edmond can fill in in left field once every couple of weeks. That's the whole point of having uh, uh, Tommy Edmond. But having him be your starting left fielder on opening day, it may be, it may be Tyler O'Neill, but it could be, it's definitely probably not going to be Dylan Carlson. But uh, Tommy, Ed, it's a bad sign when you're already kind of counting on that from Edmond. He's a fun player. He's an exciting player. But uh, you saw holes in his swing during the run last year. And he tended to have a lot more big hits than more consistent hits, uh, I would say. But uh, I feel like they're maybe relying on him a little bit too much too. So I don't pay that close of attention to most teams' managers in the regular season, but yeah, <laughs> I came out of the regular season having positive vibes about Mike Schilt. He, uh, you know, he's he's easy to like. He comes from a, an orthodox background. It seems like everybody has really liked him, and he, he, you know, if you'd asked me to rank managers, Mike Schilt, he would have done pretty well for for some reason. Who knows what reason I would have had, but I would have ranked him pretty high. The postseason was kind of an odd time to watch him because he was seemed like he was managing in a in a different era and. There were moves he made that were really baffling, and then they kind of worked out. And then there were moves he made that were kind of baffling that didn't work out as well. And so I'm curious to know whether this there were signs that he was that kind of manager in the regular season that I just didn't pick up on because I wasn't watching closely, and or whether the experience of watching him in the postseason gives you any concerns about him going into, say, the next year's postseason if the Cardinals make it. It is definitely worth noting that— um, Mike Schilt has still is probably going to have a couple year halo around him just simply because of the person he took over for and and just like just base level of competence I think uh, uh, which you clearly saw immediately in the middle of the season in 2018 and I think carried over into 2019 uh, just 
just he seems to be on the same page as everybody else, and that it's amazing how much farther uh, that goes. Uh, during the regular season, it de- uh, the main thing that the the big frustration I think that people had with uh, with Mike Matini, in addition to all the strategic problems and the pigheadedness and the fact that all of his players hate him and the fact that he couldn't talk to the media and the fact that you know what I'll stop. But of all the Matini problems, one of the major problems with him was there was a clear erosion of like basic like base running and defense and just like like I know we all laugh about the fundamentals, but the Cardinals had like was like leading where like they were the defense was becoming a real problem base they were there were base running issues all over the place those clearly got cleaned up when Schilt got there and that really took them a long way the car 2019 Cardinals were not a were not a really terrific team in fact they were underperforming particularly on offense in many ways but all the things that were hurting them in 2018 and 2017 and 2016 those were cleaned up and I think that made a big difference I think also the fact that he was willing to bench Matt Carpenter for for the last really month and a half of the season and ride with a hot hand like Tommy Edmond and really kind of have the respect of the clubhouse to tell a one of their veterans, uh, you're not hitting well, so you're not playing. It was a really good sign because that was something that Mike Matheny famously would just say, it's his spot. I got to get him right. Got to get him right. That was the phrase. we. I will hear that in my novel on my deathbed. I will hear Mike Matheny saying, got to get him right. Uh, and so you saw that switch. In the postseason, he definitely kind of shifted to a feel manager a little bit, particularly when it came to his pitchers. Uh, that actually speaks to a larger thing that I think is more part of the organization than necessarily just Schilt, which is to say there's a Adam Wainwright is just going to have a contract to do whatever he wants as long as he wants forever, and it paid off. And then Wainwright was good was good in the playoffs, but I think there is something about the organization that's beyond just Schilt. In a you know Schilt's mistakes were usually of trusting guys too much rather than just doing completely erratic insane things they were all kind of based in a logic that we understood even when we disagree with it and we would see people i saw everybody yelling at shelton i totally agree with a lot of it too but so much of it was based in something that he had shown which was he really he he trusts he trusts the guys that got him there and uh, until he absolutely cannot in a short series like that you, to me the biggest mistake he made was leaving wainwright in for too long and it did end up costing him but that was in of character. That, now, if the team starts playing terrible defense or they start bunting all the time, then I will be concerned because that will remind me of the previous manager. Uh, generally speaking, there were some odd moves, but they were of the character. They're still, they were still the same guy that made the good moves during the regular season. So we had you on last September to talk about the Cardinals' midseason turnaround and how they got so good. And that was about Jack Flaherty and it was about the defense. And... Defense should still be a great strength of the Cardinals. It's something that when you look at the lineup or the pitching staff, it's kind of the forgotten thing, I guess. And so it's a little easier to overlook. But if you're a Cardinals fan and you've been watching Wong and Edmund and Bader all season, then I guess that makes you feel pretty good going into a, a full year of all of those guys again because those gloves are really great. Yeah, but it's you know it's worth noting too, though, that a lot of this comes down again to the offense, which is to say Harrison Bader was a, a terrible offensive player uh, last year to the point that he eventually got pulled from the lineup, even though he is an exquisite, brilliant center fielder. The Cardinals need Matt. One of the reasons they need Matt Carpenter to hit. One of the reasons they need Paul Goldschmidt to bounce back. One of the reasons they need Dexter Fowler to, 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 to kind of hang on to is if they're performing, they can be okay with Bader being a bad offensive player. The problem comes when the rest of offense 
is struggling, they start to try to they start to flail a little bit. You start to put Tyler O'Neill in center field, or you start to you put I think Bader played I mean excuse me, I think Edmund played center field a couple times last year. You start being desperate for offense and it ends up hurting you with Bader. Now Wong is someone that's gonna be in the lineup of every day, but Bader struggled so much uh, offensively that you know it's it's a concern. He is not for someone as incredible of a defensive player as he is, he has not locked down center field because that offense is so bad. Now he can hit he can be as bad of offensive player as he was last year, and he'll keep center field if everyone else keeps hitting. But if not, that's when they start switching around and then you start leaking on the defense. So yeah, the defense is terrific. It's been a huge thing. They would desperately want Harrison Bader to be a 150 game player in center field. The rest of the defense, Wong and Bader and DeYoung, who is a is an excellent shortstop as well. Yes, I didn't the, mean to, to yeah, leave DeYoung out yeah. of my list. He's great too. Yeah, DeYoung is a terrific shortstop. The, up the middle, they're so good. But like, again, DeYoung really struggled at the end of last year offensively and definitely struggled in the playoffs. They want to keep those guys there. But if, if everyone's not hitting, that's when they start getting restless and, and a little antic and you end up getting away from the thing that's actually your team's strength, which is the defense. This doesn't, whole episode doesn't have to be about Matt Carpenter, but since uh, he is the center of the offense, and we're talking about the whole offense needing to be good in order to Har- for Harrison Bader to be there, what is the theory for why Matt Carpenter is going to bounce back? He was good two years ago. I think John Mosley and his uh, kind of had his little state of the of the team thing uh, at, at the beginning of spring training, and he did the you know this was a guy that was a top ten MVP voting just two years ago, and we had that he had that incredible home and we had that home run streak in September of 2018. He really went on this incredible run. It is also worth noting that he started that season. He'd ended the previous season and started that that season horribly, and then ultimately ended that season horribly, carrying over into 2019. I think that, that you know he's bulked up in the off season, guys. He's bulked up, so uh, so that's going to be fine. But certainly, you know they. Listen, they gave him a two-year contract extension before last season, knowing that Anthony Rendon and Josh Donaldson and all of these guys were gonna were gonna the third baseman were gonna be hitting the market. So in a certain way, there's a certain sunk costs that they just they feel like they have to, like he say they they have to get him out there and see and and see what works. But the the hope is like the thing about Carpenter too. He's always been kind of a streaky hitter. The theory about Carpenter is that. At, because he became such a big home run hitter in 2018, you know, he started out his career, he was simply an on-base guy. He you know, he he led the league in runs in 2013, but had 11 homers. But then two years ago, he had 36 homers. And he had that great run of homers. So what, what what he's been always trying to do is to merge that old base, uh, on-base guy with the home run guy. And what uh, the theory, what the team says and what Carpenter says is last year, he got too home run happy and he got kind of caught in between. And now he's going to uh, he's going to go back to what he was before, where he's just and to me the, that I've, I've tell you I liked home run Matt Carpenter. I loved eighteen pitch at bats against Clayton Kershaw in the playoffs. Matt Carpenter, like that to me is like the true Matt Carpenter. The idea that uh, he's going to be able to become that person that's what they're trying to get back to. Not the thirty five run home run guy, but the three eighty three eighty five on base guy. Can they get to that point? Uh, I don't know, but they they kind of have no choice but to but but. To hope and, and, and plead for it to happen. 
So Flaherty was just unbelievably good in the second half last year. Or actually, maybe I should make that my question. Was Flaherty unbelievably good in the second half last year? Because I I believe he had a .91 ERA, and I think he had a .206 BABIP, it looks like, in the second half. So obviously he's really good, but are the expectations higher than you think he can even match after that incredible run? I mean, they feel like they have the number one superstar. And listen, they they were have been big on Flaherty for a while. Like you know, they, they, I think one of the th- one of the reasons that this season you talk about making plans for long term. This season was supposed to be they planned for this season season to be Jack Flaherty, Carlos Martinez, and Alex Reyes as like three number ones atop their rotation. And Flaherty is the only one that landed. But they were not surprised at all uh, 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 by this. I think in the way that I think the rest of baseball was, they've always been high on Flaherty. Frankly, you know. They are high on Flaherty the way they were high on Flaherty coming up the way they're high on Dylan Carlson now in a way that like you kind of like, okay, well, you know, you're really, really counting on this guy and not everybody has him as high as you do. And they were proven right uh, on Flaherty. He was in the second half. He had no hit stuff pretty much every night (laughs) that that he went out. And there is the thing that I think they love the most about him. He's ornery and like an uh, and like a Chris Carpenter uh, sort of way. Uh, Carpenter is actually an advisor with the Cardinals and he and Flaherty have gotten uh, gotten close and they're very similar he's a little bit he's a little bit irritating he's a little bit annoying he's actually a little annoying for the front office and the idea that like they would love to get an extension with him and he has become like he he tweeted about how angry he was about the Chris Bryant thing and how he got screwed by that Flaherty has been very kind of he was uh, the way that Tommy Pham was treated by the organization uh, Jack Flaherty was very open about that he uh, uh, he certainly has a mentality that they love on the field if sometimes get a little irritated because they're very button up uh, uh, off the field. But uh, yeah, he they think he they thought he was going to be an ace. He's not going to be what he was in the second half. Uh, uh, no human could be. But they, they think he is one of the top five starters in baseball right now. And uh, I think they were been actually counting on that to happen. And so then Alex Reyes is uh, technically in the race for the fifth starter spot and on the depth chart uh, as a as a reliever right now. But his season last year was a complete disaster, briefly in the majors and then in AAA and then, um, you know, rehabbing injuries. Do people still talk about him? Yeah, you know, he is the thing about Reyes is what he's 25 now. <laughs> like like this is not this is not a prospect anymore. He's 25, he'll be 26 in in August. He's not a prospect anymore. There at this point, you know, there have been it, it's just been one thing after another, most of which have not been his fault. I think hardly any of them have been his fault. But at a certain and he's worked so hard to get back but you just kind of can't count on anything from him. He's been surpassed uh, in in rotation and bullpen by not just you know Jordan Hicks, who of course is injured, but also uh, Giovanni Gallegos or or uh, Ryan Helsley. Like a lot of like if like not just he's not just the phenom they're counting on. They actually feel like they have other phenoms that have actually passed him on that chart. They really are whatever they get from him is is bonus at this point. And that's sad, but you know, I think that's just kind of what happens when you've had uh, so many setbacks and so and they've all been different setbacks. It's been a different thing every time. It was his right arm, it was his other arm and then it was he's had all sorts of issues and he seems to be as healthy as he has been kind of working up, but no one is counting on anything. And uh, I think that's a, that, that, that's a disappointment, but uh, and nobody blames him for it. And if they get anything from, in, from him, great. But I think there's a general understanding that uh, uh, everything that gets gravy now. Since you mentioned Gallegos, earlier you talked about how Schultz managing reflected in the postseason reflected 
that he was trusting the guys that, that got him there. But you could also say that he was managing the postseason with, with very little trust in his bullpen. And you could see that with a lot of the relievers that had been fairly effective in the second half in particular. And, and I had gone into October expecting Gallegos to maybe be a, a breakout star in the postseason. And instead, he was used quite kind of tentatively, short outings. He was not uh, you know used as a bullpen stopper, as I had kind of expected that he might be. So is it not comforting watching Gallegos somehow? Is, I mean, his numbers were, were bonkers, and he seems to have very good stuff. But when you watch him, is there something about him that feels kind of fragile or a little bit uncertain? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Though I would say it was late in the year last year. He actually start, had he uh, you know he had that incredible run in June, July, and August where he was just just unstoppable and really became you know became the pitcher. Frankly, they had signed Andrew Miller to be the one that that you could just fill, put in whenever you needed him to in every big spot and let him manage the way that uh, I think they would have liked the previous manager to manage and uh, and like let let him use him as kind of this freelance uh, uh, bullpen guy. He actually did. Cl- clearly start to wear down uh, in September. And I think that was the idea of why Schilt was doing that, whether we agree with it or not, that he was used so much uh, for a a guy really very early in his career, so much in in those summer months when he was on that run, they began to rely on him a little bit. And he started to fade a little bit uh, in in September. Uh, He was still good, but he was not the pitcher he was before. And I think it made Schilt trust him uh, a, a little bit less, uh, less than I think he should have. But it, there was some context to not wanting to use Gallegos that much in the playoffs because he was starting to wear down. He threw a lot of innings. I mean, they were using him three. They used him, I think, three straight days a couple of times for a young pitcher that I think they, they ever planned on being able to do that. He was just so good, and they needed him so bad. But yeah, he started to wear down September, and I think that's why he was he was wary of him late in the year. But I don't think there's any sort of institutional uh, distrust of him. He was he felt like kind of found money all season it was it was pretty terrific and definitely made everybody feel a lot better uh, about the Luke Voigt trade <laughs> definitely made everyone a lot better uh, feel a lot better about uh, watching that happen because I think he's actually now passed Luke Voigt in war since that trade which has made us all feel a lot better there have not been many major moves made by the Cardinals as we noted they were able to offload Jose Martinez and get a good prospect back but in terms of additions it's a very short list and heading that list is the pitcher who has seemingly been referred to almost exclusively as <laughs> KK by his own request he is a pitcher from Korea and he has had excellent numbers there but what do we know about him because uh, apparently we don't know how he prefers his <laughs> full name to be pronounced but what is the expectation for his performance you know he's a heavy slider I think that's what he's kind of no- was known for there and I think it's what they hope they hope they're getting here just a, he's a very heavy dose of sliders again we, ha- we haven't seen stat cast numbers on, uh, on him so we don't know spin rate on, on a lot of things but they love his slider I think that's the thing that they're kind of counting on from him he's currently I would say right now a lot of whether he's in the rotation or whether he's a swing guy in the bullpen is going to depend on Carlos Martinez I think the Cardinals want Carlos Martinez to be a starter Carlos Martinez desperately wants to be a starter he even even when he was uh, a, a, bre- a really good closer at times over the last two years, every time you asked him, he said, yeah, but I don't, I know I, cl- I saved the game, but I would have much rather started it. Starting is so much more fun and, brought, and, and breaks more money, of course. So he brought that up uh, constantly. So they want him to be in the rotation. Mike Schilt has said early in the sp- uh, said so far, like the Martinez uh, famously is not always on the same page uh, with the Cardinals when it comes to like workout regimens and like off-season regimens. This year there has been a change in that and they're very happy and they feel very strongly. I think that Martinez 
Martinez is going to try to, uh, is going to be in the rotation. If that happens, I think the, the, the Kim's going to be what they want him to be, which is to be basically a swing man and to be a guy that you can put. Uh, listen, Adam Wainwright is in the rotation right now. Mm-hmm. That is a big risk, uh, and they want to take as much pressure off of Wainwright as they can. They, I think, they would love to see Martinez make the rotation and have Kim be like a swing guy for Wainwright starts and and then uh, and and or Dakota Hudson start, starts if he struggles. I, you know, one of the reasons that they signed Kim and Mozelak said this in the press conference was most of the free agent pitchers that they went to wanted an assurance that they would either be a starter or they would be a reliever, and they they wanted someone that could be either get you a guy that can do both. And so they uh, they and Kim gave them a KK gave them that assurance. So uh, so that that is I think that's what they imagine. I think they'd rather not use him as a starter. They will if they if they have to, but I would guess right now uh, the rotation is Flaherty, Michaelis, Hudson, Wainwright, and uh, and Martinez. And if there's a if if they if there's a spring that goes loose out of that rotation, I actually would suspect it would be maybe Ponce de Leon or maybe uh, Austin Gomber who struggled last year. It could be him. Uh, I think it more likely it would be one of them getting the rotation spot. If they, if Kim is a regular every fifth day starter, uh, either he has been uh, absolutely amazing in spring training and, and they're blown away by it or something has gone wrong. I think they, they imagine him as a swing guy, kind of the way that uh, like, so uh, maybe the way they imagine Andrew Miller would be, but be able to throw uh, even three or three innings at a time. All right. Well, I guess the good news for the Cardinals is that only one other team in the division really upgraded this offseason, and it was the one that finished fourth last year. But how good will the Cardinals themselves be? This is the win total prediction question. Thank you. And let me say my annual notion that I do not understand why all your guests get so upset about this. They are literally on a podcast previewing the season and it's their job to give their opinions. Just say the wins and move on. It's not that hard. You're not shot if you're wrong. I'm going with like 86 sounds about right for the Cardinals this year. I know that's that's higher than their Dakota projection, but definitely a lot lower than I think what the team is expecting and and uh, what the fan base will be will will kind of be demanding. I think there's there's a, not only are there are there issues. But the thing with the Cardinals is there's no obvious spot. Like, there's issues with the outfield and maybe Dylan Carlson. If Dylan Carlson, who they're counting on to eventually uh, take over left field, if he comes in and tears the league on fire like they think he's going to, I would push that up to uh, up a bit. But uh, in the lieu of that, there's a lot of potential issues and a lot of uh, breakdown potential with this team. I'll split the difference and say 86, but uh, it would not shock me if the Cardinals, everything goes right and they win 92-93 games, but it also would not shock me that Everything they're hoping to happen doesn't happen, and they have a losing season. Yeah, and you could predict 86 for every team but the Pirates in this division, and it would be pretty reasonable. So someone will probably have things go their way or get a little lucky and win more than 86, and that'll be that. But it's hard to say which team it will be beforehand. So, all right. Well, you can find Will's writing at MLB.com and New York Magazine and many other places. You can find him on Twitter at William F. Leach. You can subscribe to his free newsletter. You can even follow just the Twitter account devoted to his writing alone, which is not all that different from his regular Twitter account, but <laughs> it has its own at Leach Writings. Will, thank you as always. Thank you for having me. All right, and now for one final break, after which I will be back with Craig Edwards to talk about the Red Sox savings, the 14-team playoff format, and the three-batter minimum. Did you ever demand an answer? The who and the what and the reason why? 
Did you ever question the setup? Did you stand aside and let them choose while you took second best? Did you let them skim the cream off and then give to you the rest? Did you settle for the shoddy? Did you think it right to let them rob you right and left and never make a fight? Never make a fight. Alright, for our final segment, we're bringing in the closer, Craig Edwards of Fangraphs. And Craig, you used to write about the Cardinals, and in fact, you were the guest on our Cardinals preview a couple years ago. So while we have you, how many games do you think the Cardinals will win this year? Well, they, you know, they put together a team that wins about 85, you know, sometimes a few more, sometimes a few less. So I'll go with uh, 87. I'll be slightly optimistic. One win more than Will Leach predicted. (laughs) So it's a pretty narrow range with the Cardinals, it seems like. You're not going to have widely varying estimates. Makes sense. So we did not bring you on here to talk about that. I wanted to talk to you about a few stories that were somewhat big news this week, although not as big as Rob Manfred probably would have liked. They were kind of lost a little amid Astros mania. But before we all move on from the Mookie Betts trade, Wanted to talk to you about something you wrote about this for Fangrass because you really dug into what the Red Sox actually saved from trading him and David Price, not just from their salaries, but from the competitive balance tax penalties because they made a big deal of this. They're not the only team to do that, but John Henry essentially said, we need to be under the competitive balance tax. I think every team wants to reset every three years. And you kind of tried to add up exactly what the difference is, how much of an incentive there is for teams to do this. So what did you find? This is It's kind of a complicated accounting problem, so I'm glad you did the work. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, the biggest savings are whatever you're shedding in salary, almost mm-hmm. always. You know, in this case, you know, you've got $27 million for, for Mookie Betts, another 16 for David Price, and that's... That's you know forty three million that that goes away, and uh, because they were already over the taxes, probably another you know seventeen to twenty million. So you're talking about somewhere around sixty million dollars just in payroll savings alone this year. I, I think the problem is is when you get into a discussion of well we're doing this now so that we can save money for for the future, and right. the problem is is that those savings aren't very big. I think uh, when you look Look at what the Red Sox would need to do, say, next season to get back that whatever, you know, if you want to call it a $40 million saved this year, I mean, you'd have to run a payroll that's over $300 million. Mm-hmm. And the Red Sox, we know, aren't going to do that. I think that if they were to go back up to a $240 million payroll, you know, the their taxes at the lowest level compared to what they would be at the highest level is is still only, you know, $10 million or so. And mm-hmm. when you also consider that, you know, you're talking about wanting to reset every three years, well, it's under the current collective bargaining agreement. And in 2022, there's going to be a new one. And we have no idea if there's going to be different levels, different resetting or no resetting at all. So anything beyond 2022 is is incredibly speculative. Mm-hmm. So that almost all of the savings that you're going to get is the savings from cutting payroll. I, I you know, I don't know how much into the weeds you want to get, but there's, you know, a certain market disqualification money from the Oakland days because basically they say if you're in one of basically the top 12 markets in the country, then even if you don't make that much money locally, then you're not actually entitled to revenue sharing. 
-hmm. And that revenue sharing money goes back to the teams that pay into revenue sharing. And most of the time, because, you know, teams are doing incredibly well all across the sport, it's not a big deal. But because Oakland is in one of those biggest markets and they are also a team that is on the lower revenue side because of their stadium situation, basically baseball said, okay, we'll let you take some of the revenue sharing money, but we're going to decrease it over time. And finally, in 2020, they get no revenue sharing money. And, you know, I've seen different estimates, but it's about, you know, $40 million or so could be more, it could be less that that sort of goes back into the pool. And then that money gets split up between all of the high revenue teams, you know, like mm-hmm. the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs. And you get less if you've been over the, the salary cap. But even then, we're only talking maybe $10 million over a couple of years, something like that for a team like the Red Sox. And the savings just aren't there. The, the money that you get is from cutting payroll right now. And, you know, if you wanted to compare it to, you know, like I, I think on Twitter, I compared it to the Cardinals. The Cardinals are at, you know, 160, 170. If somebody said, hey, if you get down to $110 million, we're going to give you $10 million in each of the next two years, they would be rightfully lambasted for that mm-hmm. type of strategy because it just doesn't make any sense. But I think the the fact that there is this competitive balance tax and that there's escalating penalties, it, it creates a lot of confusion. And in that confusion, teams are allowed to create excuses for cutting payroll when you know, presumably they're still making a lot of money and all they're really doing is just increasing their bottom line. Yeah. So you mentioned $10 million. I think Zach Cram found something similar when he wrote about this for The Ringer this week. That's just not a lot, especially considering, as you noted, Forbes estimated that the Red Sox operating profits were over $80 million in 2018. Granted, that was a World Series winning year, but then they got a boost from that in attendance. So They're pretty profitable, and that's aside from the appreciation of the franchise itself. So it would seem like $10 million a year is just not worth trading Mookie Pets. And it's kind of hard to figure why teams are making it out to be such a, a big deal. Do you think that any part of it is teams themselves or ownership overrating the impact of it? Or do you think it's purely just banking on people not doing the math that you did and thinking, oh, these are such onerous penalties and taxes. These teams have to get out from under them and they can just kind of pull the wool over people's eyes. Well, I think, you know, when you call something a penalty, a penalty is something to be avoided. And so, you know, teams try to avoid them because it is a penalty. It is, you know, extra dollars that that go away. And when if when John Henry sees the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees get under and he probably wonders to himself, well, why can't my team do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so then he goes out and he fires the the guy who spends a lot of money and he he hires the guy who can get him what he wants. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, when you look at a lot of these types of rebuilds, whether it's a big market or a small market, if a general manager, you know, can sell you on, hey, here's what's going to happen in three or four years, we're going to try and be competitive. But in the meantime, I can save you about 40 or $50 million a year. The owner is going to love that. And it buys the general manager a bunch of time to do his, do his or her job. 
Yeah, so it's true that the Dodgers did this too. They wanted to reset the tax, but the Dodgers did that really without costing themselves competitiveness. I mean, they were still probably the best team in the league or certainly the best team in the division while they were doing that. And the Red Sox are at a place where they are not. And trading Mookie away really pretty significantly affects their playoff odds for this year. And so I guess that's a product of some of the contracts and signings that they made previously that haven't really worked out in their favor. And the Dodgers kind of avoided that kind of contract. So more power to the Dodgers, I guess. But the fact is that no other team like the the Dodgers and the Yankees weren't you know trading I don't know Aaron Judge or whoever the Mookie Betts equivalent would be who was getting expensive for them they didn't get rid of that guy and the Red Sox did so when you see a team saying that they have to do something because of the competitive balance tax it just doesn't really hold water because the penalties the overage charges the draft pick penalty which is pretty negligible it's not even losing a draft pick it's just moving down a bit and then the revenue sharing money that you mentioned you add it all together and it's really for some of these franchises that are worth billions of dollars it's kind of a a rounding error and so it seems like an excuse more than anything an excuse to trade good players and not have to pay the good players and save yourself money I guess but it's odd because like the Red Sox have run high payrolls they have not been afraid to spend before so I don't know what changed suddenly unless it's just that they didn't think they could win the division this year and they figured well we'll save some money while we're not winning the division it's kind of confusing that they decided to operate this way because of course they're a part of this big conglomerate that is worth several billion dollars and so I don't know exactly why they decided to get cheap all of a sudden yeah and you you only get those savings when you spend big I think that you know, a couple of years ago, like you mentioned, the Dodgers and the Yankees reset and they did it for a, a few different reasons. The Dodgers were way over for a long time because when they were trying to sort of rebuild or remain competitive, they were taking on huge salaries mm-hmm. to get players that were not maybe worth their entire salary, but they were able to add decent players uh, at the same time. And at the time that they're resetting there, you say, well, they're resetting, look, next year there's Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Yeah. And neither team signed Bryce Harper nor Manny Machado. And the Dodgers didn't even go back over last season. And right now they're they're maybe only a little bit over. And the Yankees went a little bit over last season, and now they're way over by signing Garrett Cole. Mm -hmm. But in terms of savings, uh, if the Yankees stay over next year, they're back in that top that top tax level. And so they really only got, you know, 8 million of savings last year, another 10 this year. Meanwhile, the Dodgers uh, aren't getting any savings at all. So when you think about a team that tells you, well, we're doing this to save money into the future, the, the last two major examples didn't actually do what we're theorizing that they might. And right. for the Red Sox, the only good free agent next year worth you sort of breaking the bank on is is the guy they just (laughs) traded away yes (laughs) right and as rob arthur wrote in a piece at baseball prospectus this week if you look at the history of teams that cut payroll they don't actually tend to add it all back and more in the years to come even if you look at teams with above average payroll that cut payroll even those teams don't add more in the coming years than the league as a whole does and maybe the Red Sox are a singular case and they will but that really hasn't been the history so when a team says yeah we've got to do this now 
so that we can really splurge later. That very often does not ever actually happen. (laughs) So, all right, I will link to your piece and people can go through the numbers and see for themselves. Another thing I wanted to ask you about that briefly became a big story this week was this supposed playoff structure that MLB is considering implementing for the 2022 season. Whether they actually are or not, I don't know, but Joel Sherman laid this out. It would be an expansion from five playoff teams to seven in each league, and then the best team in the league would get a bye, wouldn't have to play in the wildcard round, and then the other two division winners in the league and the wildcard with the next best record would host the three games in a best of three wildcard round and then the bottom three wildcards wouldn't even have first round home games and it gets a little complicated beyond that the division winner with the second best record gets the first pick of its opponent from the lower three wildcards so that's the other wrinkle here is that teams get to pick which teams they want to play and the idea here is basically a keep more fan bases interested throughout the season by having more teams make the playoffs and then also have this sort of reality TV style showcase when you get to the postseason where the teams actually get to pick their playoff opponents and there'd be more playoff games and so more revenue for all involved, bigger TV deals, etc. So seemed like most of the response was negative to this and it seems like the response to almost every idea Rob Manfred has is negative and so maybe he has a lot of bad ideas but also I think there is sort of a reflexive oh no we can't change things kind of thing that baseball fans have but in this case I think the negativity was fairly justified but what did you think of this plan? Yeah I'll I'll join the chorus I, I think <laughs> you know the way that the baseball playoff system is set up, I think that in the end, you want to crown sort of a deserving champion. Yeah. And there's there's a balance of making sure that the regular season is important versus making sure that the postseason isn't completely random. And doing, you know, best of three for the second best team in the league against, you know, the seventh best team in the league creates a very, a pretty random situation where even, you know, if a team is one, say, 80 versus 95, I don't know what the math is, but it's probably like 35% of the time, the, the team that only won 80 games still gets to advance to the NLDS. And you're creating a level of randomness that that takes away from what deserving teams accomplish during the mm-hmm. regular season. I you know I like how in hockey half the teams made it make it, but there's this massive playoff system so that if you make it through to the Stanley Cup, then you know you've you've achieved like this grueling you know two months basically of playoff hockey to be the champion and you know nba a lot of teams make the playoffs but the talent disparity is so big between you know the number one seed and the number eight seed that over seven games the number one seed almost always wins but in baseball the talent level is is a lot closer even among a 95 and an 80 win team and if you're only playing three games you're really creating the the chance that uh, some really good teams get bumped out after playing you know just a game or two and you know as far as this reality tv you know one hour special i i don't think that there's any sort of opener to get people excited for the playoffs that's better right now than to win or go home games that that are mm-hmm. what the wild card are i i think that 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 builds just as much excitement as anything I, I, you know it just this just plays off as sort of a 
a weird money grab from from MLB that doesn't really solve the problems that that we think actually exist in terms of what teams are doing to try. I think what what teams do in the off season matters a lot more than than what they do in July. Yeah, I think the current playoff format is fine. I don't think it's a pressing problem that needs to be addressed. It wouldn't be high on my list of things that baseball needs to fix. And while I'm all for keeping more fan bases interested in the season, I agree with you. You still need it to mean something when you make the playoffs and when you win the World Series. Because if you just have 80-something win teams winning, and granted, they'd be pretty disadvantaged. So there is still an advantage to, say, being the best team in the league, although I think it really dramatically devalues, say, being the second best team in the league and winning a division if you're not the best team in the league doesn't really give you that much of a benefit anymore. But I think you still want the teams that are eligible to win to be good teams. And if you're putting in almost half the teams and some of them are really pretty mediocre, then you are going to end up with some pretty mediocre champions. And yes, we already kind of have to balance the flukiness and randomness of the playoffs with the long six-month season. But if you do this, I think you're really devaluing the regular season to the extent that it, it just would almost feel like a waste of time. It wouldn't really settle or, or decide very much. And that'd be a problem, I think. And And also, I think you could say that well, this will disincentivize tanking. This will give teams a reason to at least be kind of competitive because you don't have to be a great team to make the playoffs and at least have a shot. But your colleague, Ben Clemens at Fangraphs, wrote something this week about how the opposite might be true. It, it might actually disincentivize some teams from spending. Could you summarize his argument? Yeah, basically, he looked at you know the the different playoff odds of where where you were seated, and and he found you know if you know because that the second best team still ends up in that three game series, there's not really a huge advantage from going from anywhere from eighty five wins to ninety five wins, and so once you get to the eighty five win range, you're you know, maybe you're going to be slightly disadvantaged by going on the road, but there's not a huge incentive to to do a lot more than that if you know that you're not going to be the 102 win team in the league. And by the same token, if you're one of those, you know, 75 win teams and you're trying to sort of get up there into that, you know, what is the wild card range? Well, you're only going to get up there and then you have to win a three-game series before you even get a home game. Mm -hmm. And so even then, your chances of doing something that, you know, getting to the playoffs is probably worthwhile to your fans, but, you know, that home game is sort of like that, you know, extra, you know, reasoning to get get your fans excited and to get them to, you know, purchase the, the ticket packages for the playoffs. But if you have to go on the road for three games, then you're less likely to get that home game. And if you look at, you know, those those division winners, you know, their odds of making the LCS go from like 65% to 35%. And that's, mm-hmm. that's an incredible incredible drop to make sort of the, the the final four when you know you've you've had a, a a great season yeah the only part that kind of tempts me or perks me up a little is the choosing your own opponent thing which I, I think we've talked about on this podcast at some point in the past I think most people probably wouldn't like that I'm sure the players wouldn't like that but I kind of like it in the sense that it would be something to analyze right you could 
get some intrigue out of trying to figure out which team will this team choose. You get some built-in grudges, essentially, because as soon as one team picks which opponent it wants to face, then immediately that is going to light some fires under that team. Oh, they are not respecting us. We're going to show them that they were wrong. So there's kind of some built-in bad blood there that might be kind of fun, as long as it doesn't (laughs) spill into actual brawls or anything. But I kind of like the idea of just trying to figure out which teams match up well with other teams I guess that might be more fun in other sports like basketball or something where you could really look at it on a player level and say oh this guy matches up well with that guy or our style of offense matches up well or poorly with that team's style of defense that sort of thing whereas in baseball you don't get that much of that you just kind of deploy the teams and lay out the batting orders and off they go but Still, like, there are teams that maybe they'd have a really good regular season record, but their Pythag would not be so good. Their underlying stats would not be so good. And then it would be a question of how good is this team, actually? And so you might get some situations where a team that superficially seems to be really good, a team is picking to not be so good. Or maybe, like, a team that has a a great deep rotation or something, but in the playoffs, maybe their top three aren't so intimidating, and the team might say, well, we're not that scared of this team starting rotation in this series so there'd be some stuff to analyze and talk about there and that kind of intrigues me yeah i think that you know if you look say you're choosing and and the rockies are a team and you Mm -hmm. know that they're not going to get any home games in coors or some other team that has you know some sort of big advantage with, with their home park with homers or the opposite end like san francisco maybe their staff is would be prone to homers in your home ballpark but wouldn't yeah. be given up then it's 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 intriguing i i just don't know that that adding the the extra teams is 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 worth it maybe they, that's yeah. something that they could do without that i've always wondered maybe if like say the the wild card team if they were five games ahead of one of the division winners if they would could get to jump jump a spot basically mm. and get and force the division winner into the wild card game or something like that might might yeah. make it slightly more interesting i don't know Yeah, if the league expands to 32 teams, then maybe you could talk about adding a playoff team to each league, and I'd be okay with that. Or if you really want more playoff games, you could make the divisional series round best of seven, and you could even do best of three for the wild cards, even though the single elimination games are pretty fun. So there are some things you could do, but this is uh, pretty drastic and would have some pretty negative side effects. So thumbs down from both of us. So last thing, briefly, the rules that were floated around this time last year were announced and codified. And so this is the three batter minimum and the new active roster limits in most of the regular season. And then in September and the two-way player designation, position players pitching, the changes to the option periods and injured list reinstatements and managers now have 20 seconds to challenge a play instead of 30 for all the difference that will make. But the three batter minimum, that's the one that most people are focusing on. We probably talked about it a year ago. I know I wrote about it back then, but now that it is actually happening and it's upon us, do you have any strong opinions on that? I mean, I don't love it. I, I think that, you know, I I am all for upping the, the pace of the game uh, mm-hmm. where, where it can be. You know, I think the biggest things uh, would be, you know, keeping batters in the box. Uh, I wouldn't mind if we just maybe eliminated mound visits after the fifth inning. You know, I think this whole the manager takes a slow walk to the mound or the pitching coach goes out there to talk to a guy. I mean, I, 
I think that that type of thing could just be taken away. I mean, the manager could just go tell the ump what's going on, and then the the pitcher comes out, and you don't get those extra mound visits uh, from the pitching coach. You know, I I think that part of what makes baseball, uh, you know, a, a great game is there's strategy to it, but ultimately it's sort of simple strategy you know like this batter this pitcher etc etc and now you're with two outs you're thinking about whether or not to bring in a reliever for one out knowing that he'll have to face extra batters and uh honestly that's just not something i'm looking forward to announcers talking about (laughs) in games during during the season i don't think it's going to have that big of of an effect but uh that's probably the reason that i'm not like super enthused about it because i don't think it's going to have that that big of effect so so why yeah. change it yeah at first i was neutral on it really because i, I found that in 2018 this would have only affected 4.7 percent of relief appearances i assume that was similar in 2019 so it's basically like once a week per team there was one of these pitching changes that now will not be allowed so the time savings are minimal and you know i guess i'd rather have some time savings than no time savings if there were no downside but Cliff Corcoran did some research on this recently, and he pointed out that, A, most of these changes that would violate the rule are cases where the pitcher who is being pulled is getting shelled. So it's not just the frivolous, like, let's change because we want the handedness advantage, and sometimes that can go a little too far, and managers fall in love with the platoon advantage, and usually he found it happens because the pitcher who is taken out was really getting hit, and they had like a 518 on-base percentage allowed in the inning before they were pulled. So that's part of it. And then he also found that the leverage index on average when those now banned changes were made was really high like these are typically happening at really important points in the game like for instance the last one of these changes that was ever made or will ever be made i guess was will harris in game seven of the world series so yes there are some really slow innings in the playoffs when this stuff really piles up but on the other hand those are the most tense and important points of the season and so it's a little easier to stomach than when the season is really on the line than it is, you know, in some meaningless game in May or like in the fifth inning or something when there's not much at stake. So between those two things, I think it's really not so onerous. And also the time savings are just so minimal that it seems like there are other things you could do. So now I'm kind of slightly against it, although, again, it's not going to be a a dramatic change. It won't totally change baseball, so I can't be too up in arms about it. Yeah, that's the way I feel. All right, cool. Well, thank you for coming on, doing this rundown with me. You can find Craig on Twitter at Craig J. Edwards, and you can find him writing very regularly at Fangross. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. One more thing to mention, a team that was probably pretty happy that the Astros stole the headlines again this week was the New York Mets, who started something of a firestorm on Twitter on Monday when their beat writer Anthony DiComo tweeted, The most striking part of the Mets' $57 million spring training renovation may be the home clubhouse. The Mets are only using it for spring training, not for the St. Lucie regular season, to give minor leaguers a reminder of the status they're working to earn. Then he tweeted these nice pictures of the new and improved clubhouse. So essentially, the Mets remodeled their spring training stadium, which is where their St. Lucie A-ball team plays all season, spruced up the clubhouse, and they're not letting the minor leaguers use it once the major leaguers leave. 
because, well, you got to know your place, Rook, I guess. It basically boils down to, which seems like a truly terrible decision. First of all, every team should probably be sprucing up its minor leaguers' clubhouses. If you think the improved conditions will help more of your minor leaguers make the majors, then it will more than pay for itself in the long run. But the fact that the Mets did spruce up the clubhouse, and they're still not going to let the minor leaguers in, just because, well, they have to earn it, is just so silly and self-defeating. And plenty of people piled on the Mets for good reason. Ty Kelly, the former Met, who is best known for tweeting, pimping home runs doesn't matter, the planet is dying. He tweeted, tough to forget you're in A-ball when you're rationing two plates of spaghetti for 25 guys after games, but sure, leather couches will go to their heads. And PJ Conlon, another former Met, tweeted, as if having six dudes living in a two-bedroom apartment isn't enough of a reminder that you're in A-ball. That's the most amazing part of this, as if minor leaguers would ever stop working toward becoming major leaguers because they got this cushy clubhouse. Come on. You make the majors, you're immediately making about 20 times as much money on top of all the other perks of being a big leaguer. And this is just punitive. This is just, hey, you can't have nice things because you're a minor leaguer. So I'd like to see pictures of the dingy minor leaguer clubhouse that the Mets built or left alone in this renovation. What are they going to do? Just rope off the nice clubhouse and say, no, you can't come in. No minor leaguers allowed. Just such a Metsy move all around. All right, thank you to all our guests today. I await whatever transactions involving the Angels and the Cardinals come right after we did their preview segments. That always seems to happen. We talked about the Diamondbacks last time, and we discussed Nick Ahmed's value. And then right after we recorded that, the Diamondbacks extended Nick Ahmed. And we talked about the frayed relationship between Theo Epstein and Joe Madden when we were talking about the Cubs. And then they had a bit of a back and forth in the press after we recorded. So who knows, maybe the Angels will finally land that pitcher now that it's too late for us to discuss it on the the preview segment. We have something special in mind for our next episode, which will be 1500, ending a week on a multiple of five for old time's sake. And I think you'll like what we have in store, so we'll be back with that this week. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going. Amy Lee, Michael Cohen, James Turco, Drew Broadfoot, and Joel Berger. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter already. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And as noted, we will be back with one more episode very soon. Talk to you then. No poison in the No poison in the